From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? This is the one, Conrad, the bonus show that both of my fans had been waiting for. And no one else. It lost a poll 917 times. We finally did a mercy killing. We're going to talk about Houston wrestling. But hang on now. It only lost by one vote. No, it lost by 1%. That's one vote. No. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Well, either way, let's just get this horse shit over with. Uh, let's talk about how you first got involved in the business. I know you've told this on some other podcasts in the past, but uh, I know you always wanted to be a wrestler, but you didn't start out as a wrestler. Uh, you started out as a little kid, and then before you know it, you're in the office. Kind of give us the Cliff Notes version of how that goes down. My brother Tom was taking pictures. We Well, first of all, we were big fans, and if we had a day off from school – whether it be a teacher work day, president's day, what have you. My mom would take us down to the wrestling ticket office, which was like a wrestling museum. Now, before you keep going, uh, there'll be some casual listeners here who are uh, maybe more younger fans. Tell them when you say my brother, Tom, who you're talking about. Uh, my brother, Dr. Tom Pritchard, who is a professional wrestler, one of the greatest trainers of all time, trained the rock, trained Kurt Angle, and worked at WWE for many years, and that's my brother Tom. He was also a wrestler. WWF, Smoky Mountain, been everywhere, done everything. Exactly, yes. Okay, sorry. Okay. Just wanted to kind of smarten everybody up. I know there's some people who would have no idea who your brother Tom is. Thank you for doing that. Um, see, I forget those things. That's why you're, you know, that's why you're Conrad and I'm just the guy that fills in. The- Shout out to Shuley from Stern Show for pointing that out, that I need to catch up. Uh, casual wrestling fans, they know who The Rock and Stone Cold are and appreciate the stories, but maybe don't know who, you know, Dr. You know. Tom is. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Shuley. Well, so Tom, uh, we he was in high school, got a camera, got a beautiful uh, camera, 35 millimeter camera. And went down and asked Paul Bosch if he could take pictures at ringside for a class project. And Paul allowed him to take pictures. We were always the kids that, that would hang around at the office if we had an extra minute. We would be there at 930 when Paul came out to get his mail. Paul would come out. We'd say, hey, Paul Bosch. He would always take us back to his office and show us around and talk wrestling with us. Very fan friendly. Since we were always those kids that were there, if they needed something to be done, they would ask us, and the answer was always yes. Tom was taking pictures. He was 14. I was 10. They needed somebody to sell posters. A quarter a poster that we sold for $1. They gave us an area of the Coliseum to go out and sell. I went out, and I sold my four posters. I came back. I got more. I sold more posters in one night. I made 12 bucks from selling posters in one night. As a 10-year-old kid, that's a lot of money. 
way back in 1973. They continued and they said, hey, man, if he does good up there, think what he'll do in the ring. So they put me in the ring. I had a box of posters and I sold posters before the event, during the intermissions and hustled my ass off and made pretty damn good money. I made so much money that they decided I was making too much money and cut my commission from 25 cents a poster down to a dime a poster because <laughs> I was selling too many posters. Go figure. And somehow that was supposed to motivate me, but it did. Welcome to the wrestling business. There you go, kids. Hey, he's really drawn now. Let's cut his payback a little bit. Goddamn. So uh, 12 years old, uh, they had, as I said, a weekly television show. And Paul Bosch would do the commentary live each night. And he had a run sheet of all the matches that he was going to do commentary on, the interviews, and the commercial breaks. He needed an assistant, someone to cue him where he was going in and out of breaks. Like, you're going to throw to Mr. Norman Mobile Homes or Mr. Norman Fix It, and you're going to go to uh, I.W. Marks Jewelers, or you're going to go to Gallery Furniture. And... That was called the assistant director. When I was 12 years old, I became the assistant director of the television show, sitting next to Paul, giving him cues. You would also give him time cues during the interviews. And Paul, sitting ringside doing the live commentary, when he wanted something, it was very antiquated. He had a huge ring on his right hand. He would just hit you extremely hard in the knee to get your attention if you weren't paying attention. So anyway, uh, 12 years old, I was the assistant director of TV show, 14 years old, uh, Boyd Pierce, legendary ring announcer. For those old Mid-South fans, Boyd Pierce was the host, play-by-play guy for the old Mid-South wrestling show. He was also legendary ring announcer for Dallas and also Houston, wore some colorful outfits. One day, Boyd Pierce no-showed an event at the Coliseum due to a really bad um, flood. It was a bad flood hurricane season. And we got to showtime. We had no ring announcer. Well, Boyd and I had gone back and forth for probably the last six months where Boyd would throw me the microphone to allow me to plug my own shit. And Boyd's gimmick was Boyd sold pictures at ringside. And there were 20 pictures in one packet. 20 pictures for a dollar. And he would plug his shit. And go, All right, folks, come on down here to ringside. Make your way down to ringside because we got a great deal down here for you. I got 20 pictures, 20 pictures of your favorite stars all in one giant packet for only $1. That's right, folks. 20 pictures for $1. Oh, yeah, and the kids got poster. Is that Don West? Well, it was Boyd Pierce long before Don West was Don West. And it was just he would plug the living shit out of his stuff. And then, yeah, and the kids got poster. So I kind of would bitch and moan a little bit, and Boyd throws the microphone at me one day and says, go ahead, kid. You do it. Thinking he can freeze you out right there. Exactly. So never being uh, too shy, I took the microphone, and I said, well, well, thank you for that plug, Boyd, but I just want to let everybody know what we do have down here, that's right, I do have posters down here for only $1, but it's a giant poster, and while Boyd has pictures that are $24, I have one giant poster with over 23 
superstars on one giant poster. So you can either get 20 little pictures for a dollar or one giant poster with 23 Houston Wrestling Superstars for only one dollar. Come on down right now. Don't delay. Get down here right now. And he looked at me and said, wow, kid, you did all right. You learned. So now we fast forward to he doesn't show up. There's maybe, maybe a thousand people in the Coliseum that ventured out on this night to come see their Houston wrestling. And we don't have a ring announcer. And they said, I'm wearing jeans and a Hobie surf shirt. Oh, you're fashionable. Oh, yeah, exactly. I wasn't planning on ring announcing. And they said, do you want to announce? And again, never wanted to say no. I said, well, hell yeah. So I get up, and I remember welcoming everyone to the Sam Houston Coliseum and then asking everyone to please stand for the playing of our natural anthem. (laughs) Well, it's on tape. I love from that. there, from there, the very first match, weighing in at 270 pounds from Yakahoma, Japan, Toro Tanaka. Yeah, I didn't have a didn't have a great night. I ended it with superstar Billy Graham standing over me and calling me a punk kid and threatening to strangle me because I announced as a Lothario the winner of the match, and I was scared shitless so that was 14 16 years old i got a referee in uh some spot shows and 18 years old i I was out and uh in the office and and kind of running the place and doing all kinds of good shit what type of hazing did you have as a youngster in the locker room well as until I was probably 16, I didn't go in the locker room, man. That was a no-no. That was completely off limits. If you went in the locker room, you kept your head down, and you didn't say a word to anybody. And if anybody spoke to you, it was yes or no, sir, and get the fuck out. Um, I remember my brother Tom when he he went, Tom Pritchard, Dr. Tom Pritchard, the guy that trained stuff, um, it's funny how we just take that shit for granted. Thank you for that. Uh, Tom was wrestling in California. And Tom had, had become a professional wrestler, and Tom was on the road. And he calls me one day and tells me to find a movie with Gary Busey and Jodie Foster in it. And the name of the movie is Carney. And it's about a a carnival clown that sits in the dunk booth and pisses people off. And he says, get the movie, watch the movie and call me back and tell me what you learned. I got the movie. I watched the movie. Thought about it for a minute. I had no clue. So I watched the movie again and I still have no clue. I called my brother he said, um, yeah, I got that movie. I watched it. What am I supposed to learn? <laughs> Boy. Wrong, wrong answer. Wrong, wrong, wrong thing. So Tom starts spizzy and kiss on it. Tizzy, 
I went, huh? Still super fizz up. I have no, I have no idea what he's talking about. He hangs up on me. So I go back. I watch the movie again. And probably about the fifth or the sixth time that it clicked, there's a scene in the movie where Gary Busey is teaching his girlfriend, Jodie Foster, how to speak Carney. And I got it. And it was because my brother was never one to teach easy. You know, he didn't get anything easy. We never got anything easy. So he made everything a, a learning, a lesson. And you had to fight for it. So from there, you know, and, and during his training days, I remember we would be in a a, a record service. A, a, Nick Kozak had a record service and had a gym in the garage. And whenever people would walk in to claim their cars, guys would yell, K-Fake! And everybody would stop what they're doing. Well, I didn't know what the hell kayfabe was. And then one, and, and I used to keep doing what I was doing, then I'd get the living shit kicked out of me. Because kayfabe, you stop what you're doing, you wait for the Mizarchs to get out, and, and then you continue after everybody's gone. So it was that kind of thing that, that I would hear this phrase, but I didn't know what it meant. Right. Had no clue what I was supposed to do. But I noticed it when, as a kid, again, thinking back, I would walk into the dressing room and guys, okay, fame. And then I got it. So um, you talk about, you know, being in the wrestling, what kind of hazing. The guys were, were pretty good because I was a kid and, and they knew me since I was a kid. They'd seen me around there forever. I had known Dusty Rhodes since I was like 10, 12 years old. Dusty's mom lived in Houston, so I would always make sure she was taken care of in her box and ask her, you know, do you need anything, ma'am, and go get her drinks and popcorn or whatever she wanted, make sure she was comfortable. So for the most part, the guys were pretty good. I didn't get too much hazing, per se. I, I remember, here's one for you. This wasn't hazing as much as this was an eye-opener to me. 16 years old, refereeing, first time knowing I'm going to referee the entire card. We're in Galveston, Texas. I've got my girlfriend at the event with her parents. So I'm I'm Mr. Big Shot. Okay? I'm fucking referee, man. I'm hot shit. You're shutting that ass. Yeah, you know. And... I had set up the ring. I'd set up all the chairs, set up concessions. I'm going a mile a minute and everything. And it's time to get the pre, pre-match checkup. And the lady that did that was an EMT. I wasn't really that fond of her. She is, they're nice people, but they were what they were. And she takes my blood pressure and she says, your blood pressure is too high. You can't referee. I'm 16 years old. You're going to tell me I can't do something? This is my $15 that I'm going to get tonight, lady, and you're not going to stop me from getting me my $15. Well, time goes on, and the promoter of the event, they took my blood pressure a couple times. It was still high, but I'm hyped up. I'm getting angrier and angrier, so my blood pressure is raising as well. The promoter goes on to have a discussion with one of the talent on the card 
who puts his arm around me, walks me into the shower, hands me a small tablet of sorts, says, take this, lay down in the shower, and relax. Then go back and get your blood pressure taken. I'm like, well, what is it? Take it, lay down in the shower, and then go back and get your blood pressure taken in about 30 minutes. The way you just said tablet, it made me think it was like what Moses brought down off the mountain. I didn't understand that you just <laughs> meant pill until right now. Well, those old folks in us, take up them aspirin tablets. <laughs> So I, I took this mystery tablet. I laid down in the shower in the cold floor. And 30 minutes later, I went and got my blood pressure checked. And it's a miracle. It was back to normal. All was good in the world. Ta-da. And I was relaxed as fuck. So what was it? To this day, I do not know. Who, who gave it to you? Gino Hernandez. Oh, I can't wait to talk about Gino. We'll get there. Um, talk to me a little bit about the way, uh, you mentioned that Nick Bockwinkle was there the same night you guys, you know, kind of booked both the AWA champion and the NWA champion. How was Paul able to navigate that politically without anybody getting fired up? Paul had a lot of respect in the wrestling community uh, across the board. He was a member of the NWA that that's been debated actually, whether or not the NWA actually ever really let Paul be a member. Paul said he was a member. Some people later years said that he actually wasn't a member. I don't really know. Uh, Paul said he was a member, so I'm going to go with that. Did he go to the meetings? Yes. But maybe he he didn't have voting power. He did not have any voting power. That I do know. So then he's not a member, right? The board allegedly was the only one that had voting power. Just the board members. The promoter, all of the other promoters didn't necessarily have voting power. Houston being one of the biggest territories, he would have had voting power if he was a member. I would think so. Yeah. But I know that was kind of a, a, a crawl on his get along. So anyway, he was able to, to manage to book both the AWA champion and the NWA champion. That was out of a friendship, a longstanding friendship with uh, Vern Gagne and, and Bockwinkle, both. He and Bockwinkle were good friends, and we'll talk about Nick becoming a partner in the territory later on. But also with the NWA, Paul had a lot of respect across the board from people, so he, he was able to do a lot of things. He had an event, which was the first ever Sunday event in the state of Texas. Tell you how fucked up things were back in 1977. By law, you could not have a wrestling event on Sunday in the state of Texas. Wow. And Paul had the very first uh, event on a Sunday on May 21st, 1977. He deviated from wrestling on Friday night at the Sam Houston Coliseum and went to a brand new building that was called the Summit. Later became the Compact Center, now is Lakewood Church with Joel Olstein's church. But he went in there with a huge card. He had Terry Funk versus Harley Race. He had Nick Bockwinkle versus Jose Lothario. He brought in Bruno Sammartino. Uh, he had Bruno work with uh, Mike York. But he, it was a who's who of the wrestling business. He had Moolah in, just all kinds of shit. Harley Race, no show. 
The event was a three o'clock start, which was also a deviation from normal 830 time start. Car starts at three o'clock, no Harley race. Goes on, goes on, goes on. Paul's calling everybody in the world. They all, no one knows where the hell Harley is. So I says, no, he left. Um, he should be there. No Harley. Got a great house, brand new building, all these people there. And the show ends at roughly 630, 7 o'clock. And I was backstage for this. It's 7 o'clock. Harley comes walking through the door. Thought it was a nighttime show. And that was a hard one to recover from for a long time. Having uh, your, your champion no-show. Credibility with the fans, you mean? Yes, that, that hurt. And we had Bockwinkle had worked 20 minutes with Jose Lothario earlier in the night. And then Bockwinkle came back and went 60 minutes with Terry Funk. What a, what a stud Bockwinkle was to work that. Oh, my God. Bockwinkle was great. He was great. And Terry, of course, was livid. Everybody was livid. But Harley maintained that. He didn't know it was an afternoon show, even though everybody else on the car. <laughs> well, no, well, let's run through that. I mean, had he no-showed before? I, I don't know that there was I've, – I've never heard that Harley had a reputation for missing shows. It's not like he was dropping the belt. What would have been his motivation to miss on purpose? I don't think that one he missed on purpose, but he did miss a total of three shows for Paul as champion. And the other, the next two were – were considered malicious because they were after Paul broke away from the Dallas booking office. So, so you that, think Harley was unprofessional? Harley, yeah. Paul felt that, look, I, I love Harley Race to death. Um, he's always been nothing but a pro with me, but I, I'm not sure that Harley and Paul were on the best of terms. Let me ask this, just freestyling. If a guy knows shows you once and you buy it, and you book him again. If after he now shows you the second time, isn't it kind of on your dumb ass for booking him the third time? So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen.
Yes, and Paul, but Paul felt that he had the backing of the NWA and had paid his deposits and all that stuff and felt that that was going to protect him. You're yeah. right. You're right. After the second time, don't do it a third time. Shame on you. Yeah. I mean, not shitting on him. I, I just saying. I mean. No, I, I agree. And, and I think that, that a lot of people felt the same way. There was There was a feeling that the NWA was upset with Paul for breaking away from Dallas when, when Paul went to the San Antonio booking office later on. And they felt that the NWA told Harley not to go and the Fritz told Harley not to go. And Harley's a loyal guy. I mean, Harley, Harley's a man's man. But not to show up was uncharacteristic. I think there was a little more to it. Uh, there's rumor and innuendo out there that there was a shoot fight once between Pat O'Connor and Wahoo McDaniel. True or false? I was ringside for it. It was during a match, as we're talking about Harley and, and not showing up. Wahoo was booking San Antonio. We were using the San Antonio booking office. The match was Wahoo versus Harley Race. It was a second match. It was designed to be to go to a, another third match. It was an Indian strap match. Wahoo versus Harley for the NWA World Championship. They had both cut promos leading up to this match. Harley had sent promos in talking about the Indian strap match and being unfair to an NWA World Champion and the fact that an NWA champion would have to be subjected to this stuff. So they show up. That night, Harley shows up for the match, and he's got Pat O'Connor in tow. Joe Blanchard and Wahoo McDaniel uh, from the San Antonio booking office were not members of the NWA and did not book the NWA champion. But this was in Houston. Paul booked it separate. And Wahoo was the guy that Paul wanted to work with the champion. So they came in and they actually made the argument that the NWA champion, by the bylaws of the NWA, would not be able to participate in a strap match, an Indian strap match, because it's not a regulated match by the NWA. It's a work, folks. By the way, you cut promos and, and sent promos in for it. So you knew before now, and you didn't say anything about it. In addition, they did not trust Wahoo, and they didn't trust Paul. They thought there might be a swerve and try and beat, beat Harley on TV and have Wahoo be the champion and all this. So Pat insisted that he be the referee of the match and that it be under not be strap match rules where you have to drag your opponent around the ring and touch four corners that it be NWA rules that you have to pin your opponent or submission. This is a fucking work. They have the match. Wahoo's livid. Wahoo's pissed. Harley's just, you know, at this point, Harley's kind of in the middle. He's the guy that doesn't want to lose his championship. He's the guy that's just trying to get through the night. And Pat is being the guy that's being forced to be the enforcer on this night. They have the match, and the ring breaks. The one and only time I've ever seen the ring break 
in Houston. And it, it collides in a corner and just completely gives in the beams break because Wahoo is suplexing Harley so hard in this one spot. Wahoo gets out and Wahoo and Pat O'Connor are going at each other all throughout the match and kind of just, you know, fuck you, fuck yous. They get in the corner. Wahoo slides out, wraps the strap around the corner of the ring post, ties Harley's hands up in the ring post. So Harley is essentially with both hands tied to the ring post. Wahoo slides out of the strap and goes after Pat O'Connor. And they beat the living shit out of each other on the outside of the ring until Paul came and kind of got in between them and broke it up. So you could have your DQ there, Wahoo attacked the referee, your champion gets out, but they beat the living fuck out of each other, and uh, Wahoo was livid. Pat was livid too. I mean, and, and you talk about three guys that you would never, ever, ever want to be in any kind of a resemblance of a shoot with is Wahoo McDaniel, Pat O'Connor, and Harley Race. And Harley just sat there in the corner watching when anything he could do. So you started when you were 16. When did you start working in the office? Well, I actually started when I was 10. I started working in the office when I was 16. And uh, and that was on summers where I would actually go down and work inside the office selling tickets, uh, doing odd jobs, whatever needed to be done for that Friday's live events. And that consisted of cleaning the office, like I said, selling tickets, answering phones, doing research for Paul's book, any and everything that needed to be done, uh, $100 a week. And that was big money back then. So I would do that. I think the uh, the craziest thing every Friday before the matches, the bookers would come in, and it would be Gary Hart and Bronco Lubitsch arrive in the office, and I would get them sandwiches and coffee and sodas and bring it into the meeting. So I knew wrestling was a work, but I didn't know how it was done. I had, you know, trained a little bit, but I wasn't never, I wasn't really ever smartened up. And this one day I remember bringing the tray of coffee and sodas in, had tab and Sprite and stuff like that. Tab. Tab. That was before Diet Coke. And I walk in and there's Gary Hart and Bronco and Paul had a wrestling ring, a piece of art. It was a wrestling ring. And he had clay wrestlers that were in it. I actually have the ring here in, in my office and the wrestlers. But they had the guys tied up in the ropes. And Gary's talking about, well, no, baby. And he'll have his, his leg locked up here in the rope. And the referee will come in here, but he won't see it because of how he is. But he'll, he'll be tangled in the ropes. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. That's how they do it. They, they use these little wrestlers in miniature what looked like a toy wrestling ring at the time to to work out finishes. And, and that was another one of those aha moments as a kid that just ruins you for life. But Gary was incredible. Gary, wait, wait, Gary, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying they really booked finishes with fucking toys? It was art. <laughs> it wasn't a toy. I thought you were come fucking on, kidding. Come on, Hang man. On. Paul's not going to have a toy in his office. It's art. When you started running booking meetings with Pat and Vince, I need to know, were you using LJN figures? <laughs> 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 I 
from time to time, you know, we would, and then he gets up from there and he goes to bounce, he bounce out of base in the middle. Yeah. Some, no, no, I, I can't say I ever did, but I watched Gary Hart do it. Amazing. Um, I, I told, I told Gary that story many years later and he just laughed his ass off because he, he always talked about the gimmicks that were in Paul's office. Uh, speaking of gimmicks that were in his office, there's rumor and innuendo out there that Paul Bosch had a wrestling ring style uh, finger ring and that Booker T wears it now on WWE TV. What's true? What's false? What's the real scoop? That is Paul Bosch's last wrestling ring that he had. The first wrestling ring that he had made 1950 by J.W. Levitt's. Levitt Stuhlers. He was driving down the road on I-10. 1967, threw some trash out of the window. Don't litter, folks. And the ring came off. He lost it forever. Had a second one made, got held up in a parking lot, and they stole that one. Had a third one made, and the third one is what Booker T wears today. In 1989, two years after Paul passed, Someone called the television station, Channel 39, where the television show used to run every Saturday night. And they said, hey, I have Paul Bosch's wrestling ring, the one he used to wear on TV. When we heard this story, we thought it was the one that he got held up and that was stolen. Maybe the guy came across it in a pawn shop or something like that. The guy says, no, 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 no. I was traveling down the road. In 1967, I got a flat tire. I was changing my tire on the side of the road, and I found this ring. I recognized the ring from TV because I was a huge wrestling fan, and Paul was on TV and would always flash the ring on TV. He took it home. He lost it. 1989, whatever that is, 2067, 22 years later, he's moving he found the ring. He wanted to give it back to Paul's widow. He gave it back to Paul's widow. She gave it to me. I was moving in 2013, 2014, and I lost the ring. I don't know where the hell it is. But somehow Booker T got... Booker T has the last one, yes. And you can see it in a lot of... Uh, if you just type it in your Google machine, you'll see it. Uh, Booker wears it a lot on his middle finger... Uh, on his left hand. Uh, so that's kind of the backstory on that. Since we're talking about Paul Bosch, we ought to at least talk about um, this IW Marks ad that he did that a lot of folks uh, still talk about today. Kind of smarten everybody up what we're talking about. It was an ad where they dressed, the first one that they did was they dressed Paul all in black. And IW Marks Jewelers was a local jewelry store. They're still in business today. Uh, Irv Marks was the proprietor. His son, Brad, owns and does business today, still today. Very good friend of mine. Paul was in the jewelry store, and he was buying earrings for his wife. So Paul had these huge cauliflower ears that were his famous trademark. And so Paul was modeling the earrings. And Irv looked at it and thought, wow, what a great idea. He goes, I, I need to do a commercial like that. And they put Paul all in black with a black fedora and earrings 
on and they set him in a, a studio with black curtains all around him. And Irv Marks physically is on the floor turning the stool around so Paul can rotate. They didn't rotate the camera. Paul didn't move. Irv Marks is spinning the stool that Paul is sitting on to give the effect. And Paul turns and looks into the camera and says, if I.W. Marks can make my ears look pretty, imagine what he can do for hers. And then he would spin around and look the other way. Um, the ad blew up. Irv got so much free advertisement from local newspeople playing the ad because of how unique it was and different. Uh, won a lot of awards, and they ended up doing another one all in white later on. And, and Brad tried to capitalize on it uh, many years later with a football player, but it wasn't the same because football player, you don't know who the hell those guys are. without. Well, not just that, too, but... Bosch has the big cauliflower ear. I mean, it's all jacked up and gnarly looking, and there's this beautiful diamond hanging from it. The ball player has a normal dude's ear. Yeah, and he, and he wears a helmet, so nobody knows who the hell he is. Paul was on TV every day for 39 years, or every week for 39 years. Well, that's oh. out there. Throw it in your Google machine if you'd like to see it. It's kind of an interesting ad. It's kind of like wrestling's version of the old Joe Namath um stockings commercial from back in the day uh let's talk a little bit about bill watts because i know bill watts had some influence and he was involved and he was around and you did some business with him kind of curious through that's a name that a lot of people have heard but maybe some people aren't familiar with his backstory and what he did in the business bill watts was first a uh, professional wrestling big son of a bitch ungodly athlete played football for Oklahoma university and bill got started in the business, did big money business everywhere. He went main evented in Madison square garden for Vince senior, uh, did huge business in Georgia. Watts did business everywhere. He went, he was a huge draw, great talent in the mm, late seventies. Bill purchased the Louisiana Territory, which was the Mid-South Territory, which consisted of Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, and it was considered the Mid-South Territory. He purchased the territory from Leroy McGurk. Leroy McGurk was a great amateur wrestler in his own right, a junior heavyweight, who in later years went blind. Some people say Bill Watts uh, stole the territory from a blind man. That's, you know, I wasn't there. Don't know. But Bill was a very, very successful wrestler and later became a very successful promoter and booker. Watts in buying the territory retired from the ring and he would book the territory. But Bill would also bring in some great bookers like like Ernie Ladd and, and uh, God, Buck Robley, some different folks. Watts ran Louisiana in, the, in that area, but it also kind of crossed over into Texas a little bit. And so those were some of the stars that, that Paul wanted. So Paul started dealing with Ernie Ladd to try and get to to some of the big Mid-South stars, and that relationship started there. And you did some work with – am I making this up? You, did, you worked with Watts? I did. In 1983, I think it was uh, – 
Paul had kind of hit a wall with the San Antonio booking office with their round robin of different bookers they had. They went from Wahoo to Tully to Dick Slater to Tully to Buck Robley to Tully. And needless to say, Paul did not like Tully a whole lot. Tully was very difficult to work with. And Paul felt that Tully was trying to sabotage Houston. Watts had Ernie Ladd as his booker, and Ernie was sending talent to us in Houston. We had had a big show in Houston, headlined by Gino Hernandez and Tommy Rich in a cage. Gino was livid over his payday for the night, came in and complained. And Paul was at the point where he was he was done. He cut Gino a huge check, and Bill Watts called. I said, hey, Paul, have you ever considered selling your town, selling a percentage of your town? And up until that point, Paul had never considered it. But Paul was getting up in age and was sick of dealing with the talent. So he basically created the best of Texas wrestling. He sold a portion to his nephew. He sold a portion to Nick Bockwinkle to where Paul owned a third. His nephew owned uh, two-thirds of a third. Bockwinkle owned a third of a third. And then uh, he sold the remaining 33 and a third percent to Bill Watts in Mid-South Wrestling. So Bill came in, and Bill came in as an owner. And the deal was that when Bill came in as a partner, Bill would handle all of the booking, Bill would handle all the payoffs, and Bill would handle the talent. So the days of Paul having the best payoffs in the country went away in the uh, swoop of a pen. And Bill Watts was now in charge of uh, Houston wrestling as far as the talent and, and the paydays went. So Bill came in, and, and we started using their Mid-South TV. They had a Mid-South uh, television show that was one hour in length, and we would use the one-hour Mid-South show and also produce an hour from the Coliseum every Friday night, and that would be our two-hour block on Channel 39 each week. Cool. Anything else? Yeah, you know, when Bill came in, Bill was, believe it or not, might have heard of the reputation being a little difficult to work with sometimes. And I was a kid. I was a dumbass. Uh, had a huge ego. Thought my shit didn't stink, even though it didn't. But Bill came in, and I just had what I felt was were certain rights. I thought, by God, you know, I was ring announcing. I was on TV, and I should be... You know, king shit. So Watts would come in, and when they would have big shows, he would tour Boyd Pierce, who was his television commentator and big show ring announcer. So Boyd would come in, and Boyd would announce the main events for the big shows. Well, I took exception to that because, God damn it, I'm the ring announcer. I'm here every week. I'm, I'm announcing this stuff, and I'm, I'm working in the office. I'm doing all this other stuff. I should be the ring announcer. And I walk into the dressing room this one night that Boyd came in. And imagine this as a kid, about 20 years old, whatever I was. And going up to Bill Watts, I said, well, what's he doing here? He said, he's going to announce the main event. I said, well, I'm the announcer. Yeah, well, he's my television announcer. He's going to announce the main event. 
I said, well, fuck it. I quit. And I turn around and walk out the dressing room. And I never forget walking by JYD, Mr. Wrestling 2, Chavo Guerrero. Um, good God. It, it was kind of a who's who of the wrestling business at the time. Ernie Ladd. And all these guys and walking out the back dressing room door and just walking out the back door of the Coliseum. And I was never, ever going to come back. And that lasted a few months until I finally realized that, uh, that wrestling in Houston didn't cease and just stop and close up shop because I wasn't the ring announcer. And I made a few phone calls and mended some fences and they brought me back and brought me back in as general manager and came in to run the office. And the hardest thing that I ever did was having to go pick Bill Watts up at hobby airport after this. Cause last time I'd seen him, I basically said, fuck you. I quit. Right. And now I got to go pick him up in my little shitty car and drive him to the office. And he got in the car I said, Bill, I said, before you, you know, anything, I said, I just want to apologize. I said, I fucked up. Uh, I was wrong. Um, I don't know what else to say, but I, I'm truly sorry. And as many times as Bill Watts has been an asshole to me uh, in this world, this time, Bill looked at me and says, oh, goddamn, don't worry about it, kid. You're a kid. Everybody fucks up. And he was cool about it. How great that, is that? That was the end of it. Now, later year, later on, he threw that back in my face. But uh, for that one moment, he didn't didn't hang it over my head and, and allowed me to uh, eat some humble pie and move on and continue to do what I love to do. But Bill, you know, Bill came in, man, and Bill Bill ran Bill ran the roost. Bill ran that locker room. His his bookers, they came in. They had a plan. They worked the plan. And they told stories. And there wasn't any fucking around, man. If you didn't want to do something, the buck stopped at Bill. It wasn't this committee. There wasn't hemming and hawing with Tully. If a guy didn't want to do anything, I'd say, fuck you, Tully. I'm not going to do it. He'd whine and bitch and cave in. Bill would say, get your ass out of my dressing room. You're fired. So it was a different vibe. It was a completely different vibe with, with Watts in charge. And then Ernie Ladd, who he came in, started his, his booker, was replaced by Bill Dundee. And then that was a whole nother can of worms. Um, Jim Ross was there for some of this. Am I right? Jim, Jim came in later. At first, Jim was working in the office for Bill and marketing, but Jim would do the occasional ring announcing on the Mid-South show and then from time to time, Jim would also sit in and do some commentary on Mid-South. But Jim wasn't doing a whole lot of it at this time. And Bill brought in Dundee to kind of handle the wrestlers. And Dundee brought in a lot of talent from Tennessee. Made a little talent exchange with the Memphis territory with Jerry Jarrett and uh, Jerry Lawler. Well, you know. And Dundee came in and said, you know, he set the territory on fire. I got to admit that. And burned it to the ground. And then burned it to the ground. Sure did. Now, let, let's explain what we mean there. You know, we talk about not wanting to do this on our show sometimes. But when we say he set the ta- set the territory on fire, but then burned it down, elaborate on what we're, what we're talking about there. 
Well, there's a term called hot shotting where you come in and you just throw everything against the wall. You throw the, the, the hottest ideas, the best ideas, and you capitalize it each and every week. There's, there's no, there's no real downtime. There's no big build and you do great business. You do really good business for a while, but then eventually you run out of ideas and you run out of something to top yourself. And instead of spreading that out, Bill Dundee came in and just threw a shitload of new talent in. Great talent. Rock and Roll Express. The Midnight Express with Jim Cornette. Magnum TA and Mr. Wrestling 2 made Magnum TA a huge star. The uh, the Russians, Volkov and Darso. He brought guys in and Terry Taylor is another one that came in but they went so damn fast, there was not a lot of time in between to absorb and to build anything underneath. Everything was hot. Everything was red hot all the time. After a year of that, you're just burnt. You're just burnt out. Because anything you bring in new pales in comparison to what you just had. So Bill just kind of started – his style of booking got stale and the hot acts that he had created in rock and roll express and the midnight express, they went on to greener pastures in Crockett. Well, actually Cornette and those guys went to Dallas, went to world-class and rock and roll went on to Crockett. So they, he made them and then they were gone and he didn't have anything behind that to replace them. Uh, let's talk about, when Watts was involved and had part of Houston, what, if anything, changed about the way the television was presented? The main thing about it was simply that we used Mid-South pre, pre-packaged show that ran around the horn. So the show that you saw on Mid-South in the territory, whether you were in Tulsa, Oak City, or in Louisiana, we got that same show in Houston. That was part of our two-hour block. We would normally do 30 minutes in front, which was footage from Houston and from the live event in Houston. You would have the hour Mid-South show in the middle. That was your meet. And then you would have 30 minutes on the other side of that, more Houston footage. So that took care of your two-hour block in Houston. So the show had to be, be written around that. We did do local interviews just specifically for Houston that would replace some of the Mid-South stuff. But it was a lot more detailed. There was a lot more attention to storytelling versus, well, here's a match, and just have a match for match's sake. I think there was a lot more emphasis on on angles, personal issues, and storytelling when Watts came in. Uh, What did um, did Jim Ross and Bill Watts have any sort of differing opinion about ratings or the way television should be judged as successful compared to the old school way that Bosch had been doing it. In Houston, Paul never really cared about ratings. It was, it was a foreign language really to Paul. And all he cared about was that his sponsors did good business and that the live events sold out and that the live events did good business. For syndication and for Mid-South, they were looking to expand, and it was a new era. 
where television stations were now looking at Arbitron ratings. And Arbitron was the book that television stations looked at to see what kind of rating, how many viewers were you getting for your television show? And they looked at syndicated shows and saw, okay, well, you're in the Shreveport market. You're doing a a 4.6 share in Shreveport. Shreveport, that meant something. And then the guy in Chicago is, is looking at your ratings. It was a foreign language to us. We had never dealt with it. It was one town. We didn't care what the hell they were doing in Chicago. We didn't care what they were doing in Tulsa or Oak City. But Jim Ross was looking at those overall numbers to try to sell the Mid-South show to L.A., to New York, to Atlanta, and to expand the Mid-South syndication network. So those ratings were important to him. And Houston, being a top 10 market, was important to the Mid-South overall rating because they could point to Houston, which had a great market share, and say, well, our Mid-South show is performing great in Houston. Paul didn't give a shit. It was foreign to him. He didn't care about ratings. But to Jr., he was consumed with it. Jr. would constantly quote numbers and, and talk about market share and demographics and how many 18 to 24-year-olds are watching us. And by God, the other day in Poughkeepsie, we did a 6-9. Didn't mean shit to Paul. And Paul did not speak the same language that Jim spoke. And Jim was a very detail-oriented, he's a numbers guy. He loved numbers. And he could skew them any way that, that he wanted to, to to help him. Well, but so can everybody who sells advertising. So that's not uh, that's my point. That's not a negative to Jim Ross. That's just the way advertising works. Talking about advertising, though, you said something a minute ago that I think a lot of people may have missed. Paul cared about the relationships he had with his sponsors. So back then, you weren't really going through an agency. You weren't really selling your show based on a demo or a book, which is what they call ratings. Um, because the whole ratings process is really silly. Here's kind of the backstory of how it works. If you're a white dude, they send you a dollar in the mail and a big, what they call diary, which is a stack of sheets of paper that you have to fill out and log everything you write down that you watched. So let's say in your, like in my local market, we have an NBC affiliate that's called WAFF and it's channel 48. Well, if I wrote down that I watched this show and that it was on channel 48 and that it was NBC, but then I wrote WH&T, which are the wrong call letters. Then the other station that's not an NBC affiliate, that's not on Channel 48, that doesn't have law and order, the CBS affiliate, in fact, is going to get the credit there. And if you're uh, a black dude, you're going to get like two bucks in the mail. And if you're a Hispanic dude, you're going to get like five bucks in the mail. And most people just take this money and throw the rest of that shit out. And every now and again, someone will fill it out. But if there's any inaccuracies, it skews everything. And a small percentage of these people actually report it. Now, there are some different metering markets now and technologies now that are different. But back in those days, that's what they did. They just mailed these diaries out and hoped people would fill them out. So the sponsorship angle is the way it was done before ratings were kind of a thing. And one of the the big sponsors, and this is always kind of fun to go back and look at, 
is Mattress Mac and Gallery Furniture. And I want you to kind of talk about that relationship that Paul Bosch and Houston Wrestling had with him and, and who Mattress Mac is and why that was so important to both of them. Gallery Furniture started out as five mobile homes at 6006 I-45 North between Tidwell and Parker in Houston, Texas. And anybody that has spent any time in Houston, Texas, watching television has heard the commercials for Gallery Furniture. Jim McInvale, who is also known as Mattress Mac here locally in town, bought this these five trailer homes on the north side of Houston called the Gallery Furniture. And they sold cheap, well, inexpensive furniture, a lot of bean bags, a lot of particle, uh, particle wood furniture, things of that nature. Mattress Mac, uh, after a guy by the name of Jerry Premazon, who owned JJ Furniture, after they dropped out because we had a waiting list of sponsors to be on Houston Wrestling. And Paul would only have one furniture store. He would only have one jeweler. He would only have one insurance guy, one car dealer. That's it. And you had to be on a waiting list. If someone dropped out or didn't pay their bill, you were next in line. So Gallery Furniture gets on as a sponsor. And he comes up and he does his interviews and uh, or his commercials, and they would do them live in front of the crowd before the matches would start. So you couldn't hear them by the microphones, but you could hear them if you were close enough and you could hear what they were saying on the stage. And Mac one day had his receipts in his back pocket for the day, a bunch of money, and all he could think of to do at the end of it was, and Gallery Furniture really will save you money! And he held up his receipts in his hand, a wad of cash, and was waving the money. And this became his slogan. I mean, this became the call. Every time that Mac would get up to do his commercial, a bigger crowd would gather to cheer him on when he would yell, save you money, and became a damn cult hero at the Coliseum on Friday nights. Well, one year um, we had another big Big flood in Houston. Houston floods a lot. Used to flood a lot more. And as far as the TV and the newspapers could go was about 6,006 I-45 North between Tidwell and Parker. And they had pictures of the Gulf Freeway flooded. And floating down the freeway was furniture and beanbag chairs. And that was on the front page of both newspapers and opened up every newscast. That was on a Thursday and Friday morning all across the papers. So we're at the show on Friday night and Matt comes in and he is filthy from head to toe, stunk to high heaven from obviously working out in the sun and and heat all day long and walks up and says, hey, I just wanted to thank you, Paul. Just wanted to thank you for uh, being real good to me and letting me come on here, but, but I'm done. What do you mean you're done? He says, I'm done. He says, you see those pictures in the, in the newspaper? You see the news? That was all my furniture. He says, oh, damn. He says, well, he's, are you, that's all of it? He says, I've got you know a bunch of stuff left up in, in a warehouse, but that's about it. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm not even going to do a commercial. And Paul said, you know what? You paid for it. Let's do your commercial. Let's tell your story. So Mac gets up with Paul Bosch. Paul puts his arm around Mac and says, ladies and gentlemen, you saw the 
news this week and you saw the pictures of the devastation that this flood caused. Well, if you saw that, you probably saw some furniture floating down the North Freeway. Well, that furniture was Jim McInvale's gallery furniture. And folks, he needs your help. And he's going to be open all day Sunday. If you're watching this on Saturday night, that's tomorrow. And if you're watching this on Sunday morning, that's right now. Houston wrestling fans, we're asking you to go on out and show uh, gallery furniture your support. Mac did more business that weekend than he had ever done. He sold everything in his warehouse, and he took orders for more furniture than he'd ever done and basically put him on the map and is now one of his, the most famous face in furniture. In the United States. In the United States. Anywhere. And he owes it. Uh, he owes a lot of that to Paul Bosch and Paul discouraging him from calling it quits that day. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what everybody kind of wants to hear here. And uh, that's Gino Hernandez. There's lots of rumor and innuendo about the way Gino died. But before he died about the special relationship he had with Paul Bosch and I know you've been dreading this, but I'm not going to let your ass tiptoe here. Uh, I'll, let's try something new for you. Let's try to tell the fucking truth. Is Paul Bosch was rather he Gino's real father? I don't know. I don't. I don't. I really don't know. I know that that was. Here's the funny thing about that man. All the years I lived in Houston and worked for Paul Bosch. The first time I heard that rumor was from Freddie Blassie in 1987 when I came to work for Vince McMahon. You didn't hear it, or you didn't th- you didn't suspect anything. Nothing looked fishy. None of that. Well, when you look back in hindsight, you kind of start asking yourself all kinds of questions. Geno started wrestling. His first match was on his 18th birthday in Houston for Paul, and. Paul gave Gino a lot of breaks that I don't think he ordinarily would have given to a young kid at that time. Gino went on to be a humongous star. Paul got him booked all over the world, uh, got him booked in Mexico to kind of put some size on and, and get better. From there, he booked him up for the Sheik in Detroit for an extended stay before Paul would even bring him back. And when Gino came back, he did okay until finally it was kind of cut, you know, fish or cut bait. Gino wasn't catching on with people. They looked at him as, uh, you know, the hometown kid being favored by Paul, being put in these spots that he really shouldn't be in, and turned Gino heel. And that's where Gino exploded. And Gino exploded as a heel, turning on who his on-camera mentor, Jose Lothario, and having a blood feud that was, wasn't was touched for a long time as far as business in Houston. Um, they did terrific business for years in different incarnations of the match, one-on-one, had, hair, had two hair matches within a year. I mean, who the hell does that? Both did did great business. Shaved Gino's head and then shaved then then shaved Jose's head, and he was bald like Hogan. Didn't have that much hair to shave, but still shaved his head. Um. So, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. 
I, I do know that when when Gino passed, I was in the office and I got the call on the hotline. There was uh, a number in our office that very few people had. And Gino had the number. Gino's mom had the number. Mm. And she called and I didn't recognize the voice. And she asked for Paul. And I asked who was calling. And she told me. I walked into Paul's office and I said, hey, so-and-so's on the phone. I, it didn't click with me at first. And I walked back out. Paul came out of his office, obviously, visibly upset, and said they found Gino dead. And... uh It, it just was, it was, it was surreal. He had just, he had just been in Houston. He had just, he had just come through and done some shots for us for, for a long time. This was the other just kind of crazy timing thing. Um, they were estranged for years, man. Uh, Paul and Gino, Paul and Gino from business, you know, it was, it it was weird. And again, you, you think back and look at it and go, Okay, this is weird. But when Watts came in and took over the booking, we booked some guys from Dallas. Gino was working Dallas, world class for Fritz. Brought Gino in. Gino walked in the back door, and there was a big commotion. And Paul was up doing commercials on the stage. He looked back, saw Gino walk in the back door, stopped what he was doing, and walked off the walked off the set and went back to the dressing room to see Gino. That was kind of weird. And again, all this is hindsight. This is like just when you sit back and you think after I heard all the shit and, you know, talking to Freddie Blassie uh, about it, then I went, wow. Okay. Did you ever talk to Gino about his family? Not really, because the story was that he, he was adopted. I knew his mom. His mom used to come to the matches, beautiful redhead. Um, Did she come along? Was, yeah. But, uh, you know, Gino's real name was Charles Wolf. Louis Hernandez uh, was his stepfather, adopted him. So, you know, according to Gino, he never knew his, his real father. Did you ever see her interact with Paul? They were friendly. But, but nothing out of the ordinary. Did no. you ever have any sort of access to Paul's books? Do you know if she ever received any money? No, not from the office. No. Was Paul uh, more generous with Gino's paydays than maybe some other performers at his level? Yes. Okay. Gino, Gino uh, made a living just working Houston for a long time. A lot of guys couldn't he- afford to do that. They had to take other stuff. If you were on top in Houston, yeah, you could. But sure. Gino, but Gino was the exception. And yes, Gino could just work Houston and make a very good living. So Gino was paid like he was main eventing, even though he wasn't always in the main event. He was normally in the main event, though. But I, I think some people would some people would challenge why Gino's in the main event when he's not he's not working the territory. Yeah. And Paul's argument was because he's main eventing because he's drawing money in Houston. So what say you? Quit pussyfooting around. In your opinion, 
Not in fact. Not that you did a DNA test. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Yes or no? Just say yes or no. I don't know. I mean, I I I believe so. I believe so, or I don't believe so. It could be. No, I believe believe so. I know because I don't. I don't know. I don't know if they were or not. I just think that that it was a very close relationship, and it could have been. But then again, you know, I I try not to deal in rumor and innuendo and bullshit because there's a lot of that going on. Did Paul treat him special? Yeah. But people would argue that Paul treated uh, me special, but he wasn't my dad. Did old-timers in the territory consider, we're not going to name any names, but there are people in the business who old-timers would say, what's Terry Funk say about your mother? Yeah, they didn't. They didn't say that about her. So, that I can so the perception is not that Gino's mom was ever a rat, but maybe that Gino's mom was yes, Paul's they, mistress. They, yeah, there was that rumor. Yes, that she was a rat, or that she was a, no, just his she, mistress. That, that they no, that they that they might have been, that they might have had a hookup, and that she might have been his mistress at one time. But and you, was, you that, never was that rumor. I didn't know that till. But again, I didn't know that until. Many years later, the the story Fred Blassie told me was that she was Paul's girlfriend and that uh, while he was married, while he was married and that uh, Louis Hernandez. Paul basically set Louis Hernandez up with her and got her to adopt, got him to adopt Gino. And that's all coming from from Fred Blassie. And that was, you know, 1987, 88. That Blassie had that conversation. Now, Gino died in 86. So when you first were around him a lot, you were similar in age. I mean, you were, he's what, five years older than you? Yeah, something like that. Um, so it's not like you would have had some sort of knowledge of seeing, you know, the the mom and Paul together back no, then. No, I never, I never did. Yeah. No, never, ever did. As a matter of fact, the only time that I can remember other than Paul saying hello to her at the matches, seeing them together was at Gino's funeral. And again, that was just, you know, somebody consoling the mother who lost her son. Uh, pitch me on this. Lots of rumor and innuendo about Gino Hernandez's death. Some people say that it was an accidental overdose. Other people don't buy it. Michael Hayes is one of those who doesn't believe that it was uh, intentional, obviously nobody intentionally overdoses, but I think Michael's argument is yes, Gina Hernandez did cocaine, but he knew when enough was enough. And it was very unlikely in his opinion that Gina would have put himself in a position to overdose on cocaine. Once upon a time, uh, brother love liked to get down and party too. chat me up here. Do you buy the theory that he overdosed himself or do you buy the conspiracy theory that maybe he had some help getting there? I am of the opinion of the conspiracy theory because it's funny. You you talk about, by God, he may have done drugs, but he knew how to do them. Gino was that guy. Gino knew when enough was enough. Gino didn't he had hard steadfast rules he, he didn't listen you're not you're not uh, just speak speak no, clearly he, here. he had he had 
steadfast rules. He didn't keep stuff in his house. He partied elsewhere and would come home. You didn't. I, yeah, I, I'm on the conspiracy theory side. So he would leave his stuff at the office in this car, a friend's house, or he would just he buy enough just somewhere to- else. Yeah, he would always leave it somewhere else with someone else. He would always go elsewhere to party. I never knew him to party at his house. Never knew him to, to keep a, a great amount. And allegedly there was a large amount that was found in his apartment when they found him dead. The coroner said that the amount of cocaine that was in his body was more cocaine than they felt than anyone could ever ingest on their own. There were no needle marks. And they said that snorting that much would, would have been damn near impossible. So they said, well, how in the hell did, you know, they said, well, he had to ingest it somehow. So I just don't buy that Gino would just over ingest. (laughs) It just wasn't, it wasn't his MO. He liked to party, man. He could party and he could hang and do more than, than anybody. But I am not of the belief that there were too many things that were just strange about the rumor and innuendo surrounding his death. There were people that swore that, uh, that he was assassinated. There was a shot to the back of the head and that's not true. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's a mystery, unfortunately, that we'll, we'll probably never get the answer to online. It says that, uh, David Manning was amongst those with some, uh, local law enforcement who broke into his apartment, uh, which I believe was called Highland Park. And that's where they found him. He'd been dead for a few days and they initially called it a homicide. And that's where this controversy comes from. But then after the autopsy comes back, that's when they said what you said, that it was an overdose of cocaine. Uh, The specific term used is cocaine intoxication. And that wasn't a secret. Uh, Lots of folks, even on the, triumph and tragedy of world-class championship wrestling dvd that the wwe did like a decade ago have said that they urged him to stop that a lot of people were worried that he was doing too much but he always kind of felt like uh he had the hang of it uh do you remember there being a time leading up to this where you were worried that maybe he was doing too much no because he <laughs> Maybe I'm I'm in the minority, but I, I felt that he at least appeared to always have it under control. And you know, that's coming from the wrestler dosage family of oh yeah, nah, take it says take uh, one every four hours, so you take four every hour. He appeared to have it under control. He appeared to be in in control of his shit. Now I wasn't around him on a regular basis when he passed. So it's kind of hard for me to say what the last few months of his life were like. Um, well, that's Gary Hart's testimony. Gary Hart had said that he was thinking he was doing too much, but Gary Hart may have been a teetotaler by that point in his life and said, you know, a little is too much. And obviously, you know, you can't argue that. Oh no, a little cocaine's fine. Um, David Manning has come out and said that, Gino had three times the amount of cocaine that would normally kill you. Uh, and Kevin Von Erich has said that 
Gino had it in his stomach. And one of the theories that kind of got this thing buzzing is that Gino didn't have his deadbolt on his apartment. And those who knew him, Manning specifically, says that he always had that deadbolt locked. Even if he lost his key, he would find a way to pick his way in because he wanted it locked at all times. So there's lots of rumor and innuendo about Gino Hernandez in general, who his daddy is, why he got paid so damn much, why he got the push he did, the circumstances around by which he died. Hypothetically, let's go down the rabbit hole, Bruce. If he was murdered, who would have been the murderer? There was rumor and innuendo that his that he had been engaged and his uh, future father-in-law wasn't all that fond of him. There was rumor and innuendo that he had a lot of gambling debt and was delinquent on it so that someone might have been there to collect a gambling debt. Um, those are the two that I've heard as far as someone wanting to get rid of him. But for all we know, hell, he might have just snorted too much cocaine. I, I can only go off of what the what the coroner said to Paul that, you know, he had the same thing. It, it's a combination of what David and Kevin both said, that he had – more cocaine than one could ingest. And he had a great deal of cocaine in his stomach. Somehow, some way, we're going to find a way to work him in to a lot of episodes here. Brutus the fucking barber beefcake has rejected this murder theory. Uh, he says that Gino was an intense, crazy partier, and he thought he had a serious drug problem. Uh, how would you rate Brutus the fucking barber's area of expertise here on this subject matter between, uh, I don't know, Zero and Katie Vick? the fuck would beefcake know gino i don't know the beefcake even knew gino i don't know where they would have even ever crossed paths uh this kind of gives you a glimpse into gino's life to me i've always been fascinated by couples who do this gino married the same woman twice <laughs> uh <laughs> that tells you when when people are in a crazy place in their life they'll get married divorced and then just hell let's do it again uh there's something else i found in my research and you never know what's true and what's not true Somewhere, somehow, there were rumors that Gino may have been gay. Did you ever hear that? Oh, yeah. God, yes. There, there was always that rumor running around. They, people thought that, that Gino was gay, that he was bi. Um, there was a nightclub owner in Houston that was openly gay, allegedly, that Gino always hung out with, that but the guy would always set Gino up with Farrah Fawcett, Bianca Jagger, chicks like that. Gino would always go out with whenever they were in town. And Gino always had lots of women around him, too. So I don't know. I never I never saw anything that would indicate. But then again, nothing would shock me either. So those rumors were always running rampant. And somebody with the success of Gino, there were people that are always going to throw out you know, those jealousy rumors to try and knock him down as well. Did you think Gino was gay? It wouldn't surprise me if he was bi. So today you've committed to nothing on Gino Hernandez. Paul might be his dad. Someone might've killed him and him talent. I know that I remember going to spot shows with Gino in these little high schools and Gino would show up with bottles of Dom Perignon before I even knew what the fuck Dom Perignon was. 
and well, sit in the back drinking drinking Dom, and then uh, we would have a bunch of it afterwards and shit. But uh, Gina was always good for a party, man. He was a lot of fun. <laughs> he was a lot of fun. He was always really nice to me, and I thought he was a, a hell of a talent. But there, there were all those rumors, man. He was a controversial figure. And people always wanted to knock him down, but you couldn't take away the son of a bitch's talent. He was the guy, I've said it before, I said it on this show and many others, that if you were to write who the million-dollar man was, Ted DiBiase being out of the equation, even with Ted in the equation, had Gino been alive, that was the million-dollar man. At Gino's funeral, they were sitting there, and they had this guy get up, and I, I'm in the pews with a friend of mine and this guy gets up and starts talking about Gino for a eulogy. And my buddy looks at me and says, Oh my God, I can't believe this guy's here. I forgot. I don't even know the guy's name. Who is he? He says, he's on the FBI's most wanted list. He's one of the top cocaine dealers in the country. Wow. And this guy's up there giving a eulogy. At Gino's funeral. I, I didn't know who the guy was. My friend knew knew who he was. Sure you didn't. But I didn't. Um, sure. But they had he had a, a platinum casket. They buried him with pictures of his of his kids in his pocket and his American Express platinum card. When they lowered the casket, they put bottles of uh, Dom Perignon on each corner, and then they drank champagne and, and broke glasses of champagne on his casket as they lowered him into the ground. Is this real? Huh? Is this real? Oh yeah, this was at the at the gravesite. They sat there and drank champagne and then broke glasses on his casket as they lowered him into the ground. Oh my gosh. And then that night we went to uh Twisted Sister because driving back from the from the funeral we said, What? If Gino were alive, where would Gino be tonight? And we were right there at the summit and it said Twisted Sister tonight. So went and hung out with Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister. Well, all right. That's not something I expected us to talk about today. Yeah, and D doesn't party. So let's, uh, before we talk about Vince McMahon and kind of the end of Houston, uh, let's talk about working with Crockett because you guys did a Crockett Cup in the Superdome. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, how Give us some good stories or insight on that whole show. And keep in mind, please, we're almost at two fucking hours on Houston wrestling so far. Okay, I'll keep it quick. Uh, Watts going national. Watch, Watts wanted to expand his domain. Jim Crockett was looking to do a big show and kind of do a big co-promotion. Watts was probably the second biggest promotion in the country uh, behind McMahon at the time. So let's partner up and let's have a big show. And let's have a big show in a dome. Watts and Mid-South had done very good business in New Orleans in the Superdome. So the idea was to do this uh, multi-day tag team tournament of the Crockett Cup in the Superdome. So they booked. They had everybody under the sun from every different territory. Brought Baba and uh, Tiger Mask in from Japan. And guys just from everywhere part of this deal. I was the ring announcer for it. So I was involved kind of at, at an arm's length, but I was one of Watts' crew and one of the Mid-South guys on, on that side of the show. 
it was my first time encountering Jim Crockett Jr. I met him uh, at the Hyatt Regency adjacent to the Superdome. It was him and Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA getting out of the car, all of them in their full-length fur coats. In April. Yeah. April 19th, 1986 in Louisiana, and they're in full bank coats. Yeah. And, of course, I'd known Dusty forever, and and I knew Magnum when Magnum was first breaking into the business. Um, Of course, you know, Magnum was nice as could be, but he was still a little bit aloof. Dusty was Dusty because he was a big star, Dusty Rose, at the time, baby. Of course, he won't say hello to me because I'm American Dream. But Crockett was an asshole. Um, Jim Crockett was just kind of a jerk and, and... kind of blew me off and, and was a was an asshole overall but it was uh it was and, and in 86 it's worth mentioning uh crockett feels like his shit don't stink they're doing huge right. business so you're a peon you're nothing i don't need to acknowledge you exactly which is true so they they went in and uh we had we had our production meetings and we had the show it was for the most part uneventful but there was some some battles between Dusty and and Bill Watts, a little bit, and and Ric Flair because Watts had to have kayfabe dressing rooms. You couldn't have in the Superdome. You couldn't have guys in the same dressing room. So they had a uh, a radio. Uh, uh, what am I talking about? A CB. No, it's a, a tape recorder. Little tiny uh, cassette tape recorder that they yeah. run pitches back and forth and argue. And I just always remember laughing so hard at. At Watts and Dusty relaying messages to to Flair and the heels on the other side, and, and Watts getting so goddamn frustrated because guys were sending back finishes and not wanting to do things that he wanted to do. And Crockett didn't have any control. It was really Dusty and Bill who were in charge of the wrestling and and what have you. But it was a bit of chaos. Um, it was not a success. They did okay business but they didn't do the kind of business that they wanted to. And that was just my first encounter with Jim Crockett. And I wasn't impressed. Just wasn't impressed at all. Dusty, at least you, you get it with dusty and Magnum. You know, I know Magnum forever. Magnum school, but it, it was Crockett was, was just a dick. And it's right around this time that, um, the UWF is purchased by Crockett and Jim Ross helps put that whole deal together. Am I right? A little while after, yeah, a little while after that, that Watts was looking to build offices in Dallas and move his offices to Dallas, have a big TV production studio. And he was looking to get out. Jim Ross orchestrated a deal with Jim Crockett to to buy the UWF for reported uh, $4 million or somewhere in that neighborhood. Do you believe that number? I believe that that's what they wanted to get for it. I believe that's what they agreed to. I don't think that any money, I don't think that that all that money exchanged hands. No, right. I would agree. But I, I was in, uh, we were in Louisiana doing a TV taping. Um, pretty sure I've told this story before. Joel Watts and I were, we were at a holiday Inn. It was a holodome. Joel didn't have a room. We were rooming together. And we went down. It was roughly 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody was in the hotel restaurant. And Joel and I went in to have lunch, and we're sitting there waiting for our lunch to come out. 
and in walks Jim Ross, Jim Crockett, uh, one of their syndicators, and a lawyer or somebody, uh, one of Crockett's lawyers. They walk in, they walk right by us and don't acknowledge us at all. Now, there's not another living soul in the restaurant except for Bruce Pritchard and Joel Watts and the Crockett and uh, Ross contingent. They walk over, they go sit down at a table, and they start talking, and everybody's laughing, joking, having a good time. And Joel is is staring and just livid because Joel has heard all the rumors that his dad's trying to sell the company and that Crockett is interested in buying it and that Jim Ross is negotiating the deal and so on and so forth. But Bill has not had this discussion with his son. And Joel's watching all this and says, fuck those motherfuckers. Who they think they are? Fuck them. I'm not going to sit in here with them over there. So Joel gets up to leave. We get up. We're, we're going to leave. And I said, you know what, man? Fuck that. Let's go over there and let's just say hello. Let's. They saw us, but let's make them acknowledge us. Let's go over there and, and say hello. So we walk over and say hi to the table, and, and Crockett turns to Joel and says, Hey, Joel, how you doing? Yeah, uh, I just bought your daddy's uh, business. Just bought your daddy's company. And you could have heard a pin drop. I was like, okay. We go back to the room. Joel asked for some privacy so that he could talk to his wife. And um, I needed some privacy because I had to make some phone calls. And I went down to the pay phone, and I called Vince McMahon. I said, hey, Vince, I'm here in Louisiana. We're doing TV tonight. Vince and I had been talking previous uh, to this. And I said, Jim Crockett just walked in to the restaurant and announced to me and Joel Watts that he has bought the UWF from Bill Watts. I don't want to work for Jim Crockett. I know you and I have been talking about me coming up there. Um, I'm ready to go. I'm done. He says, all right, don't do anything. Uh, Just uh, let me know what happens tonight and and don't do anything rash. Just don't worry. You've got a job here. (coughs) We go back. At that time, Ken Mantell was the booker for uh, UWF. And Mantell, myself, uh, Eddie Gilbert had been putting the TV shows together. So we got a room, and we were going over to the television that we were going to do that night, and it was pretty much just a review because this was a makeup TV from a TV that had been rained out in Tulsa. As we're going over TV, there's a knock on the door, and Jim Ross and Jim Crockett are at the door, and they come in to say hello and inform us that, uh, hey, guys, uh, just wanted to let everybody know that uh, Jim Crockett has purchased Bill's company, and he's going to be taking over everything, but nothing's going to change, guys. No matter what, nothing's going to change. The only thing that's going to change is the name on the checks. So go ahead. Y'all continue with your meeting. Y'all continue putting TV together, and um, I'll get back with you guys and, and let you know. But everybody's got a job. Nothing's going to change. Everybody's good. It's like, okay, cool. See you later. So JR leaves and, and walks Crockett out, and we're continuing to put TV together. And there's another knock on the door, and Jim Ross comes back in and sits down and says, Hey, what do we got for TV? And we start going over TV, and we reach 
first name. I think it was uh, uh, Baby Doll. And he says, well, you know, um, I, I don't think we're going to be keeping Baby Doll too much longer. You know, there's a little history there with, with Jimmy and all. And, um, you know, she she has some bad business over there in, in, in the Carolinas. And, and I, I just don't think that that's going to work out long term. We might want to rethink that finish. Okay, nothing's going to change. Cool. We keep going down a few segments later. We get to Sam Houston. Well, Sam Houston and Baby Doll were married in real life. And as we start talking about Sam Houston, Jr. says, "Well, goddamn boys, I, I don't know if uh, you know uh, Sam and 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 Nicola." I just I, I don't know. If Sam's going to want to stay around if Nicola's not here. Nicola is baby doll, baby doll. If everybody's not in the loop on that, so we're like, I thought you know nothing was going to change, but the name on the check. God damn, you know, it's just two people. And then we we go on a few more, and I forget who the hell else it was, but there was a third one that that was going to change, and and we got really frustrated and just said, fuck it, we're going to go to go to TV, and whatever happens happens. So we go to TV that night. Um, I called Paul Bosch. I told Paul. Uh, what had happened and Paul called Bill Watts got no answer I went home to Houston the next day and Paul says well what did they tell you and I explained what they told us that Crockett was basically the owner of the company and the only thing that was going to change was the name on the checks Paul says well how does that affect Houston I didn't ask him about Houston I don't know how that affects Houston I assume if Mid-South, UWF, owns Houston, a third of Houston, I guess he's the third owner of Houston. Paul says, well, I don't want to do business with Jim Crockett. So in the meantime, I'm calling Vince, and I said, hey, Vince, Paul doesn't want to do business with Crockett. Do you think there's an opportunity here that you guys may want to do something with us in Houston? And he says, Bruce, just, you know, hold on. Uh, there are a lot of things going on right now. But, uh, yeah, where do you think Paul is on this? And so I can talk to him. He says, no, don't talk to him. Let me handle it on my end. What I didn't know was Jim Barnett, who was working for Vince McMahon in Vince's office in New York. Jim Barnett, the flamboyant promoter from Atlanta, um, the guy who brought wrestling to the superstation and Ted Turner's TBS many years before that grandiose promoter, great businessman. Jim was good friends with Paul Bosch. So Paul had called Barnett and says, Hey, is there any chance that, that McMahon may be interested in working with us in Houston? So I'm working with Paul on one side, Vince on the other. I don't know that Paul is talking to Barnett. Paul doesn't know I'm talking to Vince. And all of a sudden, my phone rings, and it's Vince McMahon. He says, hey, pal, coming to Houston tomorrow, going to meet with Paul. And uh, you and I have never met before. We've never talked before. So the first time that we meet tomorrow, we're brand new to each other. Got me? Like, yes, sir. I, I got you. About... Ten minutes later, Paul walks in and says, we need to get the office in order. Vince McMahon and Jim Barnett and Pat Patterson are all coming down tomorrow, and uh, we need to figure out what we're going to do. 
So now we're we're two days into this thing, and Watts has still not called Paul Bosch about Crockett buying him out and how that's going to affect Houston. Paul sends Watts a telegram. There's no response, so on and so forth. Paul meets with uh, Vince and Barnett, and Paul has now agreed to make the switch and use the WWF as his new booker for talent in Houston since Paul owns a third and Peter and Nick Bockwinkel own another third. They got two thirds of, of stock and they can make that decision on their own. And Paul sends Watts another telegram saying that he's made this decision. He's going to work with Vince McMahon. And finally, Bill Watts calls. Watts is bullshit. He's livid. He doesn't want to have anything to do with McMahon and wants Paul to buy him out. They talk, but what Vince did, which was absolutely crazy, all this is taking place. This is maybe Wednesday during the week, Wednesday or Thursday. Of, of what month in the year? Oh, God. 1987. So it would have been April, May? Yeah. Something like that of 87. It was after WrestleMania 3. Well, Crockett bought uh, Watts in like uh, April 9th or so. I'm guessing of 87. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now we're, we're sitting there and Vince put someone on a plane with approximately 16 hours plus WrestleMania three of matches tapes to hand deliver to us in Houston. Guy's name was Bob Dean. I went to intercontinental airport and met him at the gate and picked up all these tapes and we started going through tapes and, and writing shows for, uh, the Houston show. We, Vincent sent us a card. It was going to be the, the rematch of Ricky steamboat, and Randy Savage for our first ever event in Houston. And Vince just started sending talent to Houston to cut promos with Paul Bosch sent blackjack, uh, Mulligan sent Randy Savage and Liz, um, God, Sheik and Volkoff. And just started sending guys to come down and meet us at the studio and go cut promos with Paul. So we're putting all these TV shows together, and Vince said, use whatever you want of the footage. Well, since he had sent WrestleMania 3 and everyone was going crazy about the Randy Savage, uh, Ricky Steamboat match from WrestleMania 3 for the Intercontinental title, Paul decided to open up the show, that week's show, with that match on free television. So what was it? Two weeks, two, three weeks before was on WrestleMania on pay-per-view. Yep. And now it's free on channel 39 in Houston, Texas. Yeah. March 29th is the date on WrestleMania three. Okay. So two weeks later, yeah, it's, it's free. We're showing it for free. We play it gets great reviews. People are, Oh my God. Uh, Paul Bosch is working with the WWF. This is crazy. Time goes on. Vince now is like, okay, we're coming in. Bruce, what do you want to do? So I want to come work for you. I don't want to be in Houston anymore. I'm, I'm done. I want to come work for you. So Vince says, all right, I need you to get everything in Houston straight. And once we can make that transition, I'll bring you to Connecticut. Is we're going through all this, we still have TV to do in Houston. 
up until this time, pretty much I've been putting the television shows together. Now Paul's got a whole new interest in the television shows. He wants to open each show with the Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage match. So for the second week in a row in Houston, we open up with Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat from WrestleMania 3. While we are promoting the rematch in Houston four weeks later of Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat, rematch from WrestleMania. So if you watched it at WrestleMania, maybe you didn't. You got it for free in Houston. Then you got it for free the second week in a row in the same slot. Who the fuck's buying tickets? And we're selling tickets to the rematch for the first ever WWF event in a few weeks. Week number three, take a wild guess what match we featured on Houston Wrestling. Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat. Ding, 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 ding. Three weeks in a row. Coinciding with this, Vince has now called me. I've got vacation time coming up. Vince has called me and says, I want you to come up to Worcester. Uh, to one of my TVs and uh, come see my operation. Let's figure out what we're going to do with you. So I go out and I meet with Vince and so on and so forth. And he says, hey, what? show me what you guys are doing for TV in Houston. I said, well, I kind of haven't been doing them uh, for the last few weeks. And so I'll show you what was done because I had the run sheets and everything. And I give him the run sheets. He says, well, what the fuck is this? So that's what they came up with. He says, I know, but you gave me the same show for three weeks. I said, no, actually, those are three different weeks of shows. If you look after the first the first match, those other matches are different. Goddamn, pal. We're, we're headlining with Randy and Steamboat in Houston. Why in the fuck are you showing the match? That's what they wanted to do. They felt that, that match was the best advertisement for the for the match, for the rematch. Three fucking times? So uh, Vince made a call to Barnett. Uh, Barnett then made a call to Paul, telling Paul that I would now be in charge of writing all the television for Houston, and I would be working with Vince to do that going forward. So I come home from my trip up north, and I walk in, and I am told you have I, I more. Him, you have. Hey, I need to work out my notice to because I'm I'm moving up north. They said, well, as far as we're concerned, you can leave now. What the fuck? What did I do? I said, we're well, up there bad mouthing Paul, and you're bad mouthing me, and you're uh, telling everybody how you can do better. Well, you can leave now. So I was a little taken aback. I explained the situation, what happened, and um, okay, well, you know, get your shit together. And um, called Vince. I said, "They say I can leave now." He says, "I." He goes, "Pal, I need you there to make this transition." So a lot of shit happened in the, in the meantime. Meetings between Paul and and his nephew and Vince and company up north. The feeling was that 
Paul wanted to sell Houston to Vince. Vince, having a soft spot for old-timers, wanted to give Paul something for it and agreed to pay Paul a fee. Let's explain what you're saying. I feel like there's a lot of people who aren't picking up what you're putting down probably right now. Vince ain't got to buy shit. He, he, He has it now. He's got the TV time. He's already taken it. The thing that was kind of keeping it alive was a partnership with Watts. Watts has just sold out to Crockett. Watts wants nothing to do with McMahon. McMahon could right now do what he had done a dozen other times to a dozen other people and just say, mine. And that's it. Nobody has to get shit. But out of either respect for stealing Bruce, Paul Bosch's you know, tenure in the business, just trying to do the right thing by somebody, whatever the case may be, out of the kindness of his heart, Vince McMahon didn't squash the Houston territory and Paul Bosch like the bug he was at the time. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. So they come up with a figure to buy the town. Let's let's say that. Let's simplify it. And, and, and when we're that, saying buying the town, let's be specific. All you're really talking about is TV time. Air. Yeah, and you don't have to negotiate that with a guy buying it. You go negotiate that with the person selling it, which would be the television station. So since he's already running WWF TV, there's nothing to buy. He's already got the TV. Right. And so it's a matter of you start calling the guys and say, hey, you want to make more money. You want to work in the big time. But rather than do that, he's trying to be philanthropic and give an old man a retirement. Correct. And in addition to that, was going to give Paul a yearly salary as well and pick up all the expenses to run a local ticket office under the proviso that they turn the ticket office into a ticket master outlet and sell more than just wrestling tickets to be able to sell concert tickets, show tickets, and everything else that Ticketmaster handles. That was actually a thing back in the day. Well, And they, and Vince was going to pay off Bill Watts. He was going to do just, God, a ton of shit that he did not have to do. In the meantime, there were certain things that Vince was asking for the Houston office, Paul and, and his nephew, to do. Once all the agreements were made. Hey, let me ask this. Paul's nephew is the mealy mouth motherfucker holding the microphone for some interviews here and there. Yeah. What's that guy's name? Pete something or other. He's not, he's not worth the name coming out of my mouth. Okay. Well, hold up a sheet of paper so I can say it. Well, can, you don't need to say Conrad. He's beneath you. I understand. I don't know who he is, but I mean, you're, you're wanting to shit on somebody. Well, I, who is this Bruce Pritchard? I mean, you'll goddamn bury an elderly man named Jerry Jarrett and give his chicken salad recipe and mock him every fucking week for months and months, but you won't say this guy's name? No. Won't do it. Pete Burkholz. You said it, not me. Okay. So he he basically felt that the money that Vince was going to give them was for the right for Vince to come in and promote Houston. Now, look at him saying, look. Vince doesn't have to pay you guys anything. He was promoting Houston before we made this agreement. He was running the summit. He was already doing it. He's downgrading by coming to the Coliseum. He doesn't need you guys. 
He's doing this out of respect to Paul. Things go back and forth, and, and, and what took place was it was kind of a he said, she said. The only problem with that part was I had to deal with the nephew long distance while I'm in Stanford, and the nephew would be telling me one thing and telling Vince another thing. But what the nephew did not know was that every time I had a conversation with him, he was on speakerphone with Vince McMahon in the room listening to the conversation. Every time that he had a conversation with Vince – I was in the room witnessing the conversation that he was having with Vince. And he was having two completely separate conversations that he didn't know the other had privy to. So once Vince realized this, he says, you know what? Fuck this. I'm not doing this. This is a bad deal. I'm sorry. Um, we're not going to do this anymore. This will be our last show. We're done in July. And I wish you guys the best of luck. We're going to go on and do our business. We're going to continue to run the town. Uh, we'll go back to the summit. And thank you. Good luck. Well, that was the last thing they expected. So they start panicking. And, and about an hour later after that proclamation by Vince, the nephew calls Vince and says, well, I don't know where things got mixed up. He says, well, things got mixed up because you were telling me one thing and Bruce another thing. And I can't do business like that. It's obviously not going to work. I wish you guys the best. No harm, no foul. We're going to move on. He says, well, could we do one last show? Paul would like to retire. And he'd like to retire in the biggest way possible with you guys. So could we do one last show? We decide that August 28, 1987 is going to be Paul's retirement show. His last show, to, his last show to promote in Houston. And Vince says, you know what? I'll do that. Paul and my old man were good friends, and it's the least I could do. So, yes, we'll do it. We put together a show with Hulk Hogan on top. Hulk had never been uh, to Houston. Who, who's he work in that match? One Man Gang. Okay. Who, who was a big deal in the territory? Correct. We, we brought in uh, Vern Gagne. We brought in Stu and Helen Hart, who Paul introduced. He introduced them in, in Long Island, New York, and they fell in love and got married and created the Hart Dynasty. We brought in Mark Lewin. We brought in my brother Tom. Mark Lewin was a huge star in Houston throughout the years. He was, he was a name. We brought in the who's who. We, we flew in Mil Mascaras. No, yeah. From Paris, Moscris was doing a movie in Paris, flew Moscris in first class from Paris to make this show, to team with Tito Santana to face demolition, so Moscris could be on the show. We brought in Kaniski. We brought in, I mean, we brought in everybody. Hey, real question. What was Beefcake doing on this show? Was he on it? He was on it. He wrestled Johnny Valiant in a hair match. And shaved Johnny Valiant's head. Brutus must pose. Damn right. So Vince is, is putting together this this huge card. And, and again, we, we made it a point that any time that we had a conversation with them, Vince and I were a part of every conversation. The nephew still didn't understand that uh, Vince was witnessing every call with me and vice versa. And Vince just was like, you know what? We're in it. 
Let's just get this thing done. We went out and did TV on the West Coast. We get in a Learjet. We all fly to Houston for the event. Vince puts everybody up, pays all their expenses at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Houston, puts together an after party for Paul that would rival one of the WrestleMania parties with a gigantic open bar, live band, uh, unbelievable food and drink, and just an incredible party. Tens of thousands of dollars. Yes, just for the party. Yeah. So we are going to go the day of, on the Friday, day of, we, being myself and Vince, are going to go meet with Paul and the nephew. We're going to talk about the financial arrangement. Now, the nephew had brought up the financial arrangement a few times, and Vince assured him that he would be fair. Financial arrangement prior to this with the other shows we had done was a 70-30 split with WWF keeping 70, them keeping 30, which was better than the 80-20 split that was normal with every other promoter. We get to the office in... Let's break uh, that down for a minute. You kind of ran through that. What we're saying is Vince covers everything, all expenses, the whole deal. He's on the hook for the building, the security, the overhead, the travel, all this shit. And then the profit, after he's taken all the risk and they've taken no risk, uh, he keeps 70% of the profit. They get 30% of the profit, and they had no skin in the game, nothing to lose. Correct. Okay. So... Uh, We hadn't discussed what we were going to do, but that was the deal that had been in place. And in classic Vince fashion, he's very late for the meeting. We show up at the office, and there's a line out the door down the street around the block for people trying to get tickets for Paul Bosch's last show. We've added uh, a few thousand seats on the floor. It's going to be a capacity-plus sellout. Probably get in trouble with fire marshal, all that good shit. We go in. Paul's not there. Paul left because he was tired of waiting for Vince. And we start the meeting with, you know what, we talked about finances. And uh, the nephew looks at me and says, I, I tried to discuss this with Bruce, but he uh, he wouldn't listen. Not, again, not knowing Vince heard everything. And Vince says, well, you know, I think I have a, a fair offer i'd like to split everything 50 50 even better than the 70 30 that they had been doing which was already 10 percent better than what everybody else got at 80 20 correct at which time the representative for houston wrestling declared that well we really think that paul has drawn this house it's his last event and we think we should keep it all Now, they're in control of the tickets. They're in control of the money. We've paid for everything else. We've brought all the talent in. We've paid for all of the accommodations. We've paid for everything. So the boys have been paid. The, well, they were going to get paid, but Vince is going to pay him. Yeah, the hotel's booked. The hotel's taken care of. The catering, the rent to the building, blah, blah. All that's handled. Vince has paid all of that. But now that the live gate cash is actually here... 
even though Vince is saying, I'm going to give you 20% more than you expected and 30% more than anybody else gets. They say, we want a hundred percent and you just cover all the fees. Yeah. And now we had flown in Paul's personal friends. Again, guys that sentimentally meant something to him over the years. All at our expense. And Vince is supposed to just party. take all that. Yeah. We pay for it and they take all the, all the revenue. So Vince got up, dropped his pants and said, God damn, you didn't even use Vaseline. Pulled his pants up and said, let's go, Bruce. We walked out of the office, got into our stretch limo outside. And the part I remember, and it's funny how you remember shit, was USA Today was a relatively new newspaper in 1987 at that time. Vince got a USA Today and just opened it up and started, like, just opened it up and started reading it. And in the middle of the limousine in the back was a wooden glass holder that had a couple pieces of uh, crystal glassware in it. And it's silence in the car. And Vince is just holding the paper up like he's reading it. Next thing I know, that wooden centerpiece goes flying. Glass goes smashing against the window and against the thing inside. And he throws the paper. I said, Vince, I'm, I think I'm done. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And he goes from a raging maniac to, Goddamn, pal. How the fuck would you know? You knew they were going to fuck us? How the fuck would you know that? Goddamn. Fuck them. Whatever you do, don't tell Terry. Hulk Hogan. Don't tell Hulk. Yeah. Um, I'm like, well, what the fuck do we do? Goddamn, we go out and we have a great show. Fuck them. Do not let them know they got to you. That's always been Vince's MO, is it not? Don't sell anything. Never let them see you sell it. Yep. And so... We get to we get to the uh, we get to the event that night. A couple things before you move on. Is that the first time you knew that was Vince's deal? Don't sell shit. Or had you the seen first it? First time I was uh, I experienced it firsthand like that. Yeah. Uh, when he said "Don't tell Terry," he had a reason for saying that. We're going to get a lot of tweets about it if we don't explain it. If he was worried that if we told Hulk if the, that hey. Uh, Vince isn't being paid for this. His reaction might be that Hulk would leave that Hulk would say, fuck this man, you know, screw them. You know why he wouldn't work. If Vince, if, if Hulk had felt that Vince was getting screwed, that Hulk would have said, screw this. And if the boys found out that they probably wouldn't have worked. So he just didn't, he didn't want, you know, he, he didn't want to sell and it was our name. It was a WWF talent. It was a WWF show. So obviously he wanted to protect all that. But I remember getting to the building that night early and walking into the dressing room. And I had had a loan for a car with the nephew. And I still owed $11,000 on it. Um, and he, I remember him pulling out of his, out of his little tuxedo, an envelope and said, yeah, Hey, here he goes, uh, 
we, we might want to just go ahead and get this squared up so that there's there's nothing more you know between us. I open it up. I didn't have eleven thousand dollars on me. I didn't have eleven thousand dollars in my name at that time. And I'm just shitting bricks, but I, I didn't sell it. Did not sell it. We go on. We have the show. I'm making a debut as a play-by-play guy. I'd never done that before. Working with Mike McGurk and Duke the uh, uh, Duke of Dorchester, Pete Doherty, as my color guy, who was a enhancement guy from New Hampshire. So that 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 Pete is not fuckhead Pete. No. Yeah, just want everybody to know. There's, we're talking about two different Pete's here. There's Pete the ring announcer and Pete the fuckhead. Correct. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, I've got all this shit going on, and, and I think that the the funniest part of all of that that took place was at the end of the show, after all said and done, the event's over, we'll go back to the hotel. They're having this big, huge blowout for Paul Bosch in the top floor of the Hyatt Regency or in, I don't know, one of the ballrooms. I call Vince. I beg your pardon. He calls me in the room. What are you doing, pal? I said, I don't know, man. I'm probably going to go meet some friends, go have a drink somewhere. Are you going down to the party? I said, no. You know what? I'm not. I'm not going to go down there, man. I don't want to see any of those people. I don't want to be there. God damn it, pal. Bullshit. You're going to walk down to that party. You're going to walk right up to Bosch. You're going to walk right up to the nephew. And you're going to thank him for every goddamn thing they did for you. You're going to do it with a smile on your face. And you're going to stay down there. And you're going to enjoy the hell out of it. You're going to have a few drinks. You're going to have some food. You're going to have a hell of a good time and not let any one of those motherfuckers know they got to you. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll see you down there. No, fuck that. I ain't going down there. Fuck those motherfuckers. <laughs> True story. Hmm. So I had to go down and smile and thank him and all that shit. Well, he, he stayed in his room with Lyndon, didn't come down. Tell me about paying off the car. Um, Vince, you know, I was upset. Vince asked me what was going on. I, I told him what what, uh, what had happened before the event, and told him that you know a guy called in his loan. Vince asked me how much it was, and cut me a check, and won the loan. Vince paid my car off. So when everybody, so so this is kind of like a little bit of insight when everybody wants me to shit upon Vince McMahon, and, and and you guys hear one side of the story. These are the things that I reflect on when I think of Vince McMahon. I think of the guy that didn't have to pay an old-time promoter yep. what he paid him, yep. that he offers up. I think of the guy that, without hesitation, pays off a kid that's been working for him for three months, pays his car off because he doesn't have the money. I think of the guy that, that just says, well, what do you owe? What do you need? Or when I'm standing in line to get married and says, do you mind if I do something for you tonight and rents a room at the Palm in Vegas and throws a huge party for me with two hours notice? That's that's the human being. That's the guy I know. He's a ruthless asshole businessman at times. But he's a good motherfucker. 
So when I hear people shit on him, go, oh, yeah, man, he's a bad guy, he does this, he does that. He's a businessman, and he's a hard-ass businessman. But he's also a very fair businessman. And and he's a good guy that's been real good to me. And, hey, I'm going to tell you when I think that he was unfair and that it was the shits with me. For the most part, the guy's always been more than fair with me and honest with me. So I can't. You know, I, I feel sometimes these stories have to be told because that's the true events. You done, done washing his balls now? I've never touched his balls. Seen them. Well, we're, we're trying to talk about uh, Houston. So I'm glad you got your infomercial in for events. But let's talk about your relationship with Paul Bosch after this. I mean, you were working for him when you're 10 years old. How old are you when you leave and go work for Vince? 24. So you've been with Gino in all of your formative years. I mean, you got your first hairs on your peaches and everything in between um, from 10 to 24. What's your relationship like with Paul after you go work north? Dead. Never to communicate again. And I felt horrible about that. So you cut him out of your life and fucked that old man? No, I didn't. I, as a matter of fact, I reached out to him uh, when I started the Brother Love gimmick and, and I realized my dream. I sent him a copy of the magazine when I was on the cover of the magazine and said, without you, none of this would be possible. Thank you for everything you did for me. And he sent it back, returned to sender. After he passed, year after he passed, his widow reached out to me, and uh, I've become friendly with his, with his widow. Oh, I not become friendly. I, I we always were friendly, but um, we we have a relationship to this day. You know, with, with his with his widow and his son. So, not, not it, it not, just ended there. Not his son Gina Hernandez. His other son. His son Joey. Um, you can catch, uh, there is a way that we should at least touch on this for whatever reason, Bosch's widow never worked out a deal to sell her library to Vince McMahon. So it's not on the WWE network. Do you want to touch on that? Not really. Cause I guess it's in legal wranglings, but it, it's, uh, cut a promo, are... say something controversial, motherfucker. Tell the truth. Well, there's a guy that's doing it on a uh, on a pay service that has it, but I don't know that she's gotten any money from it. She hasn't gotten anything that that is substantial. And WWE made some really good offers, but there's some shysters out there in the world. Are you being careful because that guy's an attorney? Oh fuck him! I don't give a shit. He's an attorney, Bruce Tharp. I don't care. Do you think but that I, I do know that Valerie is in a, is in a hard way right now, and and she could really use some money to take care of her blind son with cerebral palsy, and she's not able to take care of herself. And if she had some money for the library, that would make a huge difference in her life. And you feel like Bruce has swindled her out of that cash, or he's standing in her way to make a deal with the WWE and get the cash she needs. I feel that he's standing in her way. Okay. That's what I feel. I think that there's money out there to be made, and I don't think that it is is on the way that he's doing it right now. I really don't. 
I don't think that that, that service is something that's going to be profitable for her. And it's a shame because she really needs the money right now. Uh, you mentioned that you had uh, the clay wrestlers and ring in your office. If you never talked to um, him again, how did you come to own those? His widow gave them to me. His widow also gave me the uh, bust of Maurice Talley and the 50-year anniversary trophy that Paul had, the big gold cup trophy that's seven feet tall. I've got both of those in my office, too. Well, I'd like to do a little word association with a whole host of folks who are a part of Houston wrestling, but is there anything we've missed that you'd like to kind of put a bow on here or clarify if I didn't give you enough time or lead you in the right direction? No, you know, I mean, again, I think people are going to go, oh, you didn't give a history of Houston wrestling. We, we talked about my time, and, and usually, folks, Conrad does like 700 pages worth of notes and a lot of deep, deep research. I looked at this as my time in Houston, what I knew about it, things that, that I remember, and I said, hey, man, let's just talk about this. So I think that we covered stuff. I mean, there's so many stars that we could talk about endlessly about, but I think we covered the big moments in Houston wrestling that meant something to me. So word association away. All right, let's get to it. Uh, and I want you to try to keep these as brief as we can, unless you've got a fucking banger of a story and then we'll just take as much time as we need. Is that fair enough? Fair enough. Johnny Valentine. Tough. Bull Curry. Wild. Grizzly Smith. Ringing in the sheaves. For those who get it, they'll get it. For those that don't, they don't need to get it. Thunderbolt Patterson. Charisma. Wahoo McDaniel. Badass. Fritz Von Erich. Overrated. Gene Kaniski. Sweaty. Dory Funk Jr. The best. Red Bastine. Flying Redhead. Jimmy Snuka. Phenomenal. Toru Tanaka. Clogs. The Spoiler. Rope Walking Son of a Bitch. Gary Hart. One Creative Bastard. Hey, you know what? I want you to tell a story you told me once about Gary Hart. It, it involved a flashlight. Oh, Gary Hart one time was working a program where Gary wasn't going to be allowed at ringside as a manager. Gary gets up and he talks, he's talking to, to Paul Bosch and he says, you know what, Paul Bosch, you may be able to ban me from ringside, but you cannot ban me from buying a ticket and sitting up somewhere up in the balcony. Maybe I'll be sitting up in the balcony. Maybe I'll be sitting in the fourth row. Who knows? Maybe I'll be sitting right in the middle there of all those seats. But me and spoiler, we got a way to communicate. Maybe I'll have a flashlight and I'll flash that light every once in a while. We got signals worked out Well, he'll know exactly because I can communicate with my man in more ways than just being at ringside. So, Paul Bosch, you won't be able to stop me and I'll be out there somewhere in that arena with my flashlight to communicate with the spoiler. And the next week, of course, Gary's not there and everybody in the arena has got a flashlight. And during the match, people are flashing their flashlights in the dark. 
in the spoilers working the match, looking out and trying to point at people like, is that you, Gary? Gary, is that you? And then turn to the other corner of the ring. Gary, is that you? It was just a just an ingenious psychological way to get the audience involved and make them think they're outsmarting the heel. It was just classic Gary Hart. It's it's a little nuance. Can I freestyle that Gary Hart was actually booked in another territory that night and they needed a reason why he wouldn't be there? Exactly. <laughs> uh, Mil Mascaris. No, yeah. Even there the whole time. I can't remember <laughs> Mascaris ever doing a job. That motherfucker is the original John Cena. No, yeah. uh, Bron- no, yeah. Bronco Lubitsch. Class. Chris Markoff. Fake Russian. George Tuton Harris. The blimp. Bobby Shane. Way the fuck ahead of his time, man. You got a match you can recommend for him? What's that? You got uh, something you can recommend our listeners go look up of his? Unfortunately, there's not. There's I, I'd looked for this for years. Bobby died in, I think, 1973 or 75. Right when he was taking the book, he he died in the same accident uh, that Gary Hart and Mike McCord were injured in coming into Tampa with Buddy Colt. There's a, a quick championship wrestling from Florida clip from 73 where Golden Sol- Gordon Soley is doing commentary for Jack Briscoe and Bobby Shane on YouTube. Uh, so if you want to go check that out, it's there. Bobby Shane was special, man. He was. God, he was good. What made him so good? He was young and he had fire, but he could connect with the audience. I remember Bobby Shane was the first guy that I ever saw that would go out to the picture table and sign autographs and talk to fans. He was so approachable and so personable, but at the same time maintained that star status. He looked like a star. And he carried himself like a star, and his work was impeccable. I, I, I remember as a kid, he left an impression on me. Smooth. Uh, Nick Kozak. Oh, Kick Nozak. Um, just an all-around great guy. Tiger Conway. Well, Tiger Conway Sr. was the first black Texas champion. And he had a fence company in Houston, but a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, and his son, Tiger Conway Jr., was a big star all throughout the Carolinas. Um, but Conway Sr., man, he was another class act. Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods. <laughs> Here's what I remember about Tim Woods, telling the story about having shows where they would call people out of the crowd. And Tim Woods is wrestling this guy one time who was like looked like a biker. And Woods went to go hook the guy from behind because Tim Woods was a great amateur wrestler. And as he did, the guy reached around and bit his finger off in the middle of the of the scrap and just spit his finger out. And Woods stretched him real quick and ended the match and beat the shit out of him. But he had no idea what he had, and the guy bit his finger off was the famous Tim Woods shooting story. Um, Ernie Ladd, the big cat, Ernie Ladd, the big cat, Ernie Ladd was sitting in Bill Watts office one time trying to explain to Bill Watts why Vince McMahon is a genius. I tell you, Bill, the man is a genius. 
Yeah, take a look at what he's got. He's got Volkov, and he's got the Iron Cheek. And the real Vince, the real, the man is a genius. He fired my ass, that man is a genius. Vince thought that was the greatest story ever because in the middle of Ernie talking about Vince being a genius, he says, he fired my ass. That made him a genius. Boris Malenko. A true heel. El Santo. Santo is the original Mexican matinee idol. Buried him in his mask. Uh, scariest guy ever, the Moon Man. The Moon Man was a guy Gary Hart promoted on TV as the craziest. This is right after the moon landing. And so Gary promoted that he was bringing someone into Houston. <laughs> from the fucking that, moon? Uh, that came, that got on the spaceship from the moon. He hijacked a ride. And so he's from the moon. And he brought this guy out and had a, a, a pillowcase over his head. And pulled it off. And he had a wild afro and went around. And, and he only worked one time. But he was the moon man. <laughs> he hitched a ride on the spaceship back to earth uh who portrayed moon man no one knows i don't know that he ever worked anywhere after that but it was good for a one-off because the the astronauts had landed and it was timely cyclone negro cyclone negro man original tough guy uh dory senior the head of a legacy Terry Funk. The original wild man. Crazy. Ivan Putski. Ivan Putski, man. The Polish strongman. Dobra! Paul Bosch always used to tell the story of Ivan Putski being the greatest gimmick that ever was. Ivan Putski's real name, Joe Bednarski from Austin, Texas. He's a shot putter in college, a great athlete. But when he started the Ivan Putsky gimmick, which was kind of a ripoff of Igor, the mighty Igor in Detroit. He had uh, the long johns and trunks and shit, and Ivan would go out and he would only speak Polish. And the only thing, Dobra was good, and Yakshamash and all this shit. And Paul would have interpreters that would interpret for Ivan. He would talk about being in a concentration camp and tell these horrific stories as a child about how the uh, Germans would put him in concentration camps and his eyes would water and he would cry and so on and so forth. And people used to bring him toys and stuffed animals and candy and all this shit. Never spoke a word of English. He had people eating out of the palm of his hand. Well, Ivan leaves and Ivan goes to New York. And when Ivan goes to New York, he really gets into the bodybuilding scene. He loses his gut. He trims down. He gets all ripped up and shit. Does great business in New York. He comes back, and Paul promotes uh, Ivan Putsky coming back, and he's thinking, okay, well, we can tell a story about how Ivan lost weight, and he looks great now. Paul starts the interview. Ivan, welcome back to Houston. He's expecting a big, Dobra and Yakshimash and all this Polish shit. Ivan says, well, Paul, let me tell you, it's so good to be back here in Houston, Texas, with a fucking Texas accent. Oh, my God. And Paul would always proclaim, New York, WWWF, Vince McMahon Sr., the man that killed Ivan Putsky. (laughs) 
the great Memphisito. The great Mephisto, Frankie Lane, man. He was a legend in your, he's from your part of the woods in Alabama. Yeah. I just mispronounced the fuck out of it. My bad. That's okay. It's great Mephisto. He was, he had a great, had a great angle, great feud with uh, rivalry with Ivan Putzky, man, where he burned Ivan and Ivan's whole side of his face was all burned up. We actually had a match. He had, uh, Mephisto had a built up boot and the object of the match of Putzky won. We barbecued the boot in the middle of the ring after the match. So we had a big Weber grill, and Mephisto lost. Putzky took the boot off, put it in the grill, sprayed lighter fluid on it <laughs> in, a, in a municipal coliseum. And burned a boot. And burned a boot. That's hilarious. Yeah, you can't do that shit today. Let's run through some, uh, some feuds, and then we'll get to some more names, because I know there were some... Legendary stuff you guys did down there. Can you recommend some matches that maybe people should try to go out of the way to their sea? Maybe it's a Harley race and a Jack Briscoe or uh, a Wahoo and a Malenko or a Wahoo and a Funk or a Wahoo and Valentine or Valentine and Fritz or any of that stuff. There, there's, some act, there's, there's a match of Bull Curry and Johnny Valentine that's available out there somewhere. If you check YouTube, it's out there. It is an absolute bloody classic. It's one of the very first main event matches that Paul ever showed on television. In addition, anything with Wahoo McDaniel and Johnny Valentine. And the old stories were, was that Johnny and Wahoo would get in the back and take just a shitload of speed and get completely fucked up and go out and beat the living shit out of each other. Both of their chests would be bright red and bloody. And, I mean, they beat the fuck out of each other. Talking about uh, somebody beating the fuck out of you, you told me a story once about uh, the Funks ribbing you. Oh, God. <laughs> Actually, Dory Funk Jr. and Wahoo McDaniel. Terry just laughed. Terry didn't participate. In Port Arthur, Texas, and I was a referee, and I'm going to referee a match with the Funks against Wahoo and Ivan Putsky. And Wahoo wants to make sure that I can take a chop. <laughs> if you're paying attention, kids, this is how a rib starts. So I'm like, oh, of course I can. He says, well, let me see. So he puts me against the wall and chops the holy fuck out of me, so much so that I thought my chest had caved in. Now, for those of you youngsters who don't know who Wahoo McDaniel is, Wahoo was the original chopper in the business and when wahoo threw a chop your chest bled living, yeah it was it was beyond stiff it was beyond snug it hurt like hell and dory funk jr sitting there like well that's not how you chop this is how you chop and junior then chopped me and wahoo and dory funk jr took turns chopping the living fuck out of my chest so much so that the zipper on my shirt, on my referee shirt, was embedded into my chest and stayed, the indentation stayed for like two days. And I had a bright, just purple chest with uh, two different handprints of Wahoo and Dory chopping the living fuck out of me. I love that story. It doesn't get old for me. Well, no, because it's a kid that wants to get in the business and two old-timers beating the fuck out of him. Wahoo um, 
has had his chops described by the nature boy as a, a thick ham sandwich of a hand just flying at you. Um, hundred miles an hour. We didn't talk about Rick at all, but Rick came through the Houston territory when you were there. Do you have any entertaining nature boy stories that you can share? I think my favorite nature boy story was when Rick came through and I gave him a ride to the hotel. And this was a night that very uncharacteristic of Rick. He didn't want to go out drinking. What? He was sick. He may have been sick, but he was excited like a kid on Christmas morning when he saw a billboard for Popeye's fried chicken. So, excuse me, sir. Can we go by the uh, Popeye? Do you think Popeye is still open? I said, well, hell yeah. So we go through the Popeye's drive-thru. This is midnight on a Friday night. And Rick orders 20 chicken breasts, spicy, and 20 jalapeno peppers. And a Diet Coke. I don't think they had Diet Coke, but he got Diet something. Um, I'm thinking, hell, you know, he's getting me something, too. No, they were all for Rick. Fucking A, man. 20 chicken breasts is a lot of cock meat. Yeah, and 20 jalapeno peppers is a lot of hot cock meat. Uh, you told me a story about driving Terry Funk once when you were a kid, and you were in high school, and he gave you some advice. Can you share that? 16 years old, got my driver's license, able to go to the wrestling matches on my own, and Terry Funk needs a ride out to the White House Hotel on South Main in Houston, Texas. Well, Terry Funk was my childhood hero, so I was going to give him a ride come hell or high water. And the, the time frame that I remember was light beer was a new thing, and Burger King had double cheese bacon, bacon double cheeseburgers. So we had to go through, we, we got a couple six packs of Miller Lite and six or seven, maybe eight bacon double cheeseburgers from Burger King. And we sat in the parking lot of the White House Hotel because I was too young to go into the bar, but I could sit in the parking lot and drink Miller Lite with the former world heavyweight champion Terry Funk and eat. Uh, these bacon double cheeseburgers and, and I'm telling him stories and I'm asking him about shit in Amarillo. And I remember being a kid watching Terry get the shit beat out of him in Amarillo and the commentator pleading with the audience. Oh my God, ladies and gentlemen, anyone within the sound of my voice, whatever you do to help Terry Funk, the Bon Bronners are going to murder him. And I remember crying, eating spaghetti and, and telling my mom, we have to help Terry Funk. We have to call the police. We have to do something. We have to help Terry Funk. And Terry says, my father kicked my ass that night because he said I sold too much for the goddamn Germans. And so I go on and then he, what do you do, Pritchard? You, you play ball? And I said, yeah, you know, I play, play a little football. So, but my knee's fucked up and, and they want to do surgery on my knee. God damn it, Pritchard. Don't let the bastards cut on you. They'll go in once, and they'll go in for the rest of your life. I've had 13 knee surgeries, and they keep wanting to go back in. Don't let them do it. And by God, I didn't. I went home and told my mom, Terry Funk told me not to let those bastards cut on my knee because they're going to keep going in for the rest of my life, and I'm not going to do it because Terry Funk told me not to. And I didn't until I was like 35. 
Big John Stud. Captain USA. Uh his his son Sean Stud down here at Reality of Wrestling with us. Um you know, I think Stud was underrated. He he was a hell of a good big man in his day. Bruiser Brody. The original Renegade Extreme. He was Brody was Brody was badass. Should I tell the belt story with Brody? Absolutely. It's sitting in your house. I talked to Super Dave today. He bought a shirt. That's awesome. Thanks, Super and Dave. I, I called him. He says, you know, this is Super Dave. And I said, I do, because I see the uh, deal here. But it was nice talking to him, and he talked about the belt. Bruiser Brody uh, was notoriously cheap. Bruiser Brody, Mick Foley, was kind of known as, as cheap today. Uh, Bruiser was the original uh, cheap bastard in the business. But Frank was a great guy, and I used to love to travel with him and, and give him rides. So the last time that Frank came through the Texas Territory, he was the Texas or United States Brass Nucks champion, which was an old United States championship belt that we put a set of brass knuckles on and just named it the Brass Nucks champion. We finished up in Beaumont or Port Arthur, Texas, and Brody was a champion. Brody didn't spend a lot of money on luggage. He would just take a brown paper bag, throw a pair of shorts and his trunks and boots in there, and that was his luggage down to town. So I give uh, Frank a ride back to his hotel. I think it was a seven ninety nine a night hotel. He gets in the trunk. $7.99. yes. A little pricey for him. Usually he liked gratis. That means you pay nothing. Uh, and he went on. Well, that was the last time that we saw Frank in the territory. And someone said, well, did, he, did anybody get the belt from him? I'm like, no, no, no. Well, shit, he was the, the Brass Nucks champion and he had the belt. No one got it from him. Everybody thought that he left with the uh, Brass Nucks belt. Six months after that, roughly, give or take, I was selling that car, and I went to clean out the trunk, and lo and behold, there was a brown paper bag, and in that brown paper bag was the United States Brass Nucks Championship, and I was too afraid to come forward and say, hey, I found the belt, because I was afraid I'd get in trouble, so I just kept it, and that's the story of Bruiser Brody and the Brass Nucks Championship. I'll tweet a picture out um, sometime during the day, and you should tweet a picture out of the wrestlers inside the ring that you have of Boshes. Okay. Uh, Black Jack Lanza. Black Jack Lanza, photographer, turned out to be a great friend of mine, uh, later years, and a tremendous mentor. Peter Mavia. Boy, there's another badass. Um, I don't know how... Royalty, I guess, would be the one word you could describe Peter Maivia. Rocky Johnson. The Soul Man. The original Soul Man. Rocky Johnson. Dusty Rhodes. The second most recognizable athlete in the world. Actually, make that third, because Pumpkinhead would be number two. Alma Drill. Al Madrill was probably the original Alberto Del Rio. Hmm. Hell of a hand. Superstar Billy Graham. 
He's the one who started it all, man. He was Mr. Electricity, and he had it all. But I, I credit superstar Billy Graham with where the business went in the 80s. Don Morocco. Mm. You know, back back when Don Morocco was in Houston, he was about 70 pounds lighter than the Don Morocco, you know, from the WWF. And he was a high-flying, good-looking, just classic baby face. J.J. <coughs> Dillon. Analytical. Uh, Moondog Maine. The drunk, but funny. Alfred Hayes. Whale rope. <laughs> Don't Google that. The Sheik. <laughs> the Sheik was unique. Abdul the Butcher. Stinky and sloppy. Did I ask you about Mongolian Stomper already? No, you didn't. Uh, Archie Goldie, man, pain-free. I remember Don Carson is his manager. I always used to talk about how that man is pain-free. <laughs> his gimmick, <laughs> I'm pain-free. See, it's loaded up on Advil or, you know, I think the click was pain-free in the late 90s. Andre. The boss. You got a good Andre story in Houston? The the Andre story, man, was I remember Paul Bosch buying him a pocket watch and then getting IW Marks to make a bracelet around the pocket watch so Andre could have a wristwatch because his wrist was so damn big that he couldn't have a normal wristwatch. And so Paul got him a, a real nice pocket watch and made it into a, a giant wristwatch for him. Somewhere out there is the the die cast of Andre's forearm and hand and his feet that Paul had long before anybody else had those. Those reside in Japan somewhere now. Nick Bockwinkle. Class wrestler's wrestler. He, uh, he bought part of the territory and was planning to retire from the AWA and then come down and be part owner of Houston uh, and that didn't all go exactly according to planned, and he wound up working with Vince McMahon. Tell the story. Nick didn't, uh, obviously, when everything fell through with with Paul Bosch, that was actually after Nick had come to work for Vince. Nick was working for Vern, and we needed some agents. So Nick came in in 19... 19- 80, the end of 1987, early 1988, is an agent. Nick, off of his name, his, his wrestling knowledge, you couldn't deny him. He was a great promo and a great technician in the ring. So Vince brought him in to be an agent. But he, Nick was the kind of guy that if you asked him what time it was, he'd tell you how to build the watch. And that drove Vince insane. So it just didn't, didn't really work out. But... You can't deny Bachwinkle's contributions to the business. He, he was a hell of a talent in his day and a top draw everywhere he went. 
Uh, Bruno San Martino came through Houston. Do you have any interesting stories you can share about Bruno working in Houston? Yeah, he was a cure for insomnia. Hmm. We heard all these great things about the great Bruno San Martino from New York. Brought him in, and his match consisted of a test of strength and a bear hug. And I'm not exaggerating. 20 minutes of a test of strength and a bear hug. We talked about him a little bit already, but let's hit these two. Ivan Koloff. Ivan Koloff, man, the Russian bear. He came in, and he just he did instant business. He was a natural promo and a great natural heel. And it was during a time that, that Russian relations were tense, so he, he did very well capitalizing on that. Gino. Original Million Dollar Man. He was the best. The handsome half-breed, man. Mark Lewin. The Maniac. Uh, Marky. <laughs> God. Lewin was, he was another one that had he been born a little bit later, he would have been one of the top top guys in the WWF. If, if he had been born just 20 years later, it could have been Mark Lewin instead of Hulk Hogan is, is the guy. It's worth mentioning that you've probably heard a lot about Mark Lewin referenced as uh, the Purple Haze and his work in Florida with Kevin Sullivan, but that wasn't the only thing he ever did. And uh, that, for whatever reason, gets a lot more play than his stuff when he wasn't just the Purple Haze. Is that fair to say? Sure, because Mark was a matinee idol in the in the 60s and even say the 50s. He'd kill me for saying that. He was a baby faces, baby face, good looking, great body, great build, and excellent work. Later on, his years rolled on, became maniac Mark Lewin and, and was a top heel everywhere he went. And then when his working days were just about over is when he did the Purple Haze stuff. But because the Purple Haze stuff was probably the most outlandish stuff that he did and the most recent, that's what everybody remembers. Uh, Carl Von Krupp. <laughs> if you ever do Jim Cornette show, ask Jim Cornette about Carl Von Krupp. Carl Von Krupp was from Nova Scotia, I believe. Um <laughs> Why would I do Jim Cornette's show? I'm a fucking fan. I'm not going to be on Jim Cornette's show. Oh, my show. God. You do everybody's show. You Whatever. do more shows than I do. That's not true. If Cornette wants to get his numbers up, he'll have Conrad Thompson <laughs> on there. Oh, my God. You're going to get us Let's some hate. Let's just shoot straight. You're going to get us some hate. That's Continue. you're on this show. I want my numbers up. Continue. Okay. But but Krupp was uh, – he was an innovator, man. He had, a, he had a claw and working in Dallas against Fritz von Erich about the claw – and Krupp changed the way that he did it and became a real force. So he was an innovator. I always found him to be a very nice man. Here's one for you. Dale Valentine. Dale Valentine. You know who Dale Valentine is? I think it's Buddy Roberts, but I don't know that. Buddy Jack Roberts is right. They were looking for Johnny Valentine and had his accident in the Carolinas and was paralyzed. And Johnny was on crutches and, and couldn't, you know, didn't have the use of his legs anymore but they still wanted to capitalize on Johnny's name. So Johnny came into the territory and brought his brother, Dale, in. So they made Buddy Roberts a valentine. Needless to say, it did not work worth a shit. People, and, P, and Buddy had never worked Texas before, but they just didn't buy it. He, he didn't look like a valentine, and it just... 
It didn't work. People like Johnny Valentine because of his work. Johnny got over with his work and his toughness in the ring. His promo skills weren't the best in the world, and they didn't buy Buddy. The the only thing that that did work, and this was a this was one time. The only thing that I can ever remember that really drew with the whole angle was Gino Hernandez as a heel working with Buddy uh, with Dale Valentine. And Johnny Valentine is on crutches now on the outside of the ring. And Johnny reached his hand in to grab Gino's foot. And Gino kicked Valentine. And Valentine took a bump. A crippled old man on crutches. And Gino kicks him. That, brother, that was live. That was one of those people coming out of the stands wanting to kill Gino because he had kicked their, their crippled hero. And that's and that's that's the promo Gino cut. You're a crippled hero, grabbing my foot. I'll cripple the rest of you. Now imagine that in wow. 2007. It was hot. It was hot. But it only it was it only lasted one one week pretty much. And after that, they just they didn't buy Buddy. They didn't buy him as, as Dale uh, Valentine. That's for sure. I'll tell you, you know, you, you always want, you guys always talk about ribs and shit. I'll tell you what a sick son of a bitch Johnny Valentine was. Johnny was the ultimate river, but Johnny was a mean river. In uh, California, I believe one time, or in Washington, Johnny Valentine changed out another talent, Jay York's inhaler. Jay had asthma, and he put uh, lighter fluid or something in, replaced his inhaler. So Jay comes back from the ring looking for his inhaler and inhales it. He's almost dying because Johnny put something in it. Well, Jay went to go get a gun. He was going to kill Johnny. But Johnny thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. Again, some ribs could get a little stiff. So you fast forward several years. Johnny is now on crutches, and, and Johnny is paralyzed from the waist down and has a hard time getting around. They go out, get get drunk, and it's uh, Johnny Valentine, Red Bastine. Uh, I believe Ivan Koloff was there and and one other. And Valentine is, is coming into the hotel, and as he walks into the hotel in the hallway, Johnny slips and falls. And when he falls, his crutches fly out from away from him. And Red Bastine looks down and says, God damn, Johnny, are you all right? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. I, 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 give me my crutches. He says, you can't, you can't move, you can't get up? He says, no, I need my crutches. He says, so you can't get up at all without your crutches right now. And he says, no, God damn it, Red, get my, my crutches. And Bastine uh, takes his unit out and just pissed all over Valentine. And Johnny Valentine thought that was the absolute greatest rib ever. He's lying there being pissed He's on lying laughing. lying there being urinated upon by the great Red Bastine, laughing his ass off. And thought that was the funniest thing and told that story forever. How fucked up is wrestling? Thank you. God damn, that's a good rib. Yeah. I don't know when we'll have a chance to tell this story because you definitely don't want to attribute it to the guy who said it. But you were discussing with one of half of our listeners' favorite wrestler. You guys were having a conversation one day and you're discussing someone who has passed away. And he had a line that you use oh, what you shared with me that is 
the most assholian and hilarious thing I've ever heard when discussing someone who passed away. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, what's the finish on that guy? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, can you imagine talking about somebody who passed away? Folks, we lived in a bubble. What was the finish on that guy? It's amazing. We lived in a bubble. Uh, bad Leroy Blount. Bad, bad, bad Leroy Brown. There you he go. was the original guy to come out to music. First one I ever heard. Um, we talked about him a little bit earlier. Joe Blanchard. <sighs> you know, Joe wasn't a bad guy. Joe just was an inept promoter. What about his son, Tully? Heat magnet. Dick oh, I came up with something nice to say about Tully. Dick Slater. Warped. But you know, but you know what? Dickie Dickie was one of the greatest workers I ever saw. Captain Redneck. Yeah, but he was he was badass, man. But he but before all that shit, he was God damn, he was good. Um, I'm sorry, Captain Redneck, Dick Murdoch. Uh, nobody could throw a punch like Dick Murdoch. Working son of a bitch. Buck Robley. A sick, maniacal genius. One of the first bookers that ever, well, Gary Hart did, but then Buck probably was the next one that actually spent time with me and went over the psychology of the business of why, why you do what you do and why you don't do some things. Um, I learned an awful lot from Buck Robley. Not all of it good, but I learned a lot from Buck Robley. Harley Race. Champ. Pat Actually, I take it back. You know what? I mean, because Harley, Harley was champ, but I always call Ric Flair champ. To me, Ric Flair will always be champ. Um, Stud. I'll call Harley Stud because he was just mean and nasty. Pat O'Connor. Hmm. A whirlwind. Jake Roberts. Jake's a genius in his own fucked up mind. Jake's one of the greatest minds ever. Junkyard Dog. Hmm. Some bitch carried, he made a territory and carried a territory. I mean, JYD, in many, many ways, made Bill Watts in the Mid-South. Chavo Sr. Innovator. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Tough guy. Uh, Tommy Rich. Wildfire. Man, Tommy could transcend. Tommy, you ask me, man, Tommy looked like shit, but goddamn the girls loved him. And that some bitch was he was on fire and he had charisma out the ass. He could get an audience going. Tommy Richosaurus. Tommy Richosaurus. There you go. Uh, Adrian Adrian Adonis. I didn't work that much with Adrian, but Adrian, you know, passed through San Antonio and did some stuff. Um, Adrian was a 180 pounder and a 275 pound body. Uh, the sheep herders. 
fallen dish bags. I stole that term from them. So <laughs> you come up with uh, bushwhacker Luke or sheep herder Luke Williams advised me the very first time I met him. Uh, he asked me if I want to smoke a joint. I said, no, he said, stay straight, mate. Don't ever fall and do that shit. Stay straight. You'll be good. Needless to say, I didn't take his advice. But great guys. Well, I mean, two of the nicest guys, too nice for this business, but they fit the business too. Midnight Express. Underrated. Jim Cornette. The Mouth That Roared. You know, Jimmy is probably my second favorite manager of all time. Behind Bobby Heenan? Behind Bobby Heenan. Yeah, I think I think most everybody listening to this would agree with that. Uh, Rock and Roll Express. Going in the Hall of Fame. We haven't touched on it much here on the show. Motherfucker, man. You know, the, the Rock and Roll Express. We could do a whole show on the Rock and Roll Express because them coming into Mid-South, they, man, they blazed trails. And they, they just... Um, they did what everybody said couldn't be done. They, they took a big man territory and made it uh, into a just a charisma territory, I guess you could say. They were great. They were great. They were original. They were the original tag team experts. Uh, Dr. Death. Now, that's a stud. Doc was Doc was a badass. I, I watched Dr. Death challenge a, a Ford Bronco one night. What? And the Ford Bronco back down. Ted DiBiase. Friend. Uh, Dark Journey. Probably confused, man. I'm not sure Journey really wanted to be in the business. Uh, Let's shave a few minutes off here. Uh, Jim Ross. Jim Ross, so many things, man. Without Jim Ross, uh, I'm not sure that I would have done, been able to do all the things I did in the business because Jim, Jim went to bat for me in a big way, and he was the first one to suggest that I do on-air stuff, color commentary and interviews. He fought for me and helped me out along the way, and I returned the favor many years later in the WWF. But uh, good friend. Butch good Reed. Guy. <laughs> crazier and fucking batshit walking into a to a restaurant at 3 30 in the morning where english was a foreign language and essentially calling everyone out in it when we were outnumbered by about 70 to 1 ken mantel unsung hero Bill Dundee. Too smart for his own good. Bill Watts. Dundee's a creative little bastard. Very creative. Bill Watts. Bully. Volkoff. Cheap and strong. Kamala. He's another unsung hero, man. He did some shit. He was he was a hell of a hand, man. He was a hell of a talent. He he drew some big money back in the day. People were terrified of him. Speaking of uh, talent, Fantastics. 
Fantastics, they had a hard road to follow because they came in after the Rock and Roll Express and people just immediately compared them. But they held their own and they went right into issues with the Midnight Express and then the uh, Sheep Herders and they held their own. They did all right. They had a tough act to follow. Magnum TA. Should have been the man. Had all the tools. He had he had it all. He had the looks. He had the rap. Um, unfortunate. Brickhouse Brown. Nothing. Snowman. Less than nothing. Master G. Hell of a football player. Savannah Jack. Who? <laughs> uh, the fabulous Freebirds. fucking innovators man um you know they everywhere they went they drew everywhere they went they didn't just draw they did big business and they knew they knew when to get the fuck out to when they would leave the territory what would they be saying to themselves do 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 terry taylor hi hi buddy names bam 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 they do do Harry Taylor. Terry Terry was the booker in in Mid South for about three weeks. Elaborate. Bill Watts made him the booker because he thought he had great ideas. He bought a watch, financed it, and then Dick Murdoch told him to go fuck off and he was going to kick his ass. And um, he didn't last long after everybody started walking out. <laughs> Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So many questions here. He financed a watch? Yeah, he bought a Rolex and, and financed it. Like he was going to make payments on it? a watch. What's that? He was going to make payments on a watch? Yes. And you said... Because he was going to be the booker. And that means you've got to have a Rolex. Yep. Is now a good yep. time? I guess that's what roosters do. Is now a good time but to tell he, the story? He, I don't. I, seriously, man, I don't think he lasted more than three weeks. Because uh, Murdoch was the first one to go. I think Bill Eady left after that, um, and a few others. And Watts was like, "Yeah, this ain't gonna work." So he fired him and just made him a wrestler again. Yes, and and he he had good success in Texas, did he not? He was he was middle of the card. Yeah, he did all right. He did good. Is it hard? He was a hell of a hand. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get you to go ahead and admit that the dude could actually wrestle bell to bell. He could, sure. Are you going to tell the watch story? Terry, uh, Terry had a watch. But he financed. It's a beautiful Rolex. It's presidents with a diamond bezel. Terry. Um, would would let me borrow the watches brother love later on in, in WWF days. So one night Terry left early. I still had his watch, so I kept the watch for a couple of weeks. And when I brought it back to him, he said, "Well, hell, you wear it more than I do. So why don't you buy it from me?" I made him an offer for the watch, and he took it. So now I have Rooster's watch. That's all. I'm not telling the rest of it. <laughs> Oh, thank you for that. I don't want him to go to jail. Uh, 
Um, Tom Pritchard. Trainer extraordinaire. Underrated. And doesn't give himself enough credit. Fuckhead Pete. Fuck him. Last but certainly not least, Paul Bosch. Mentor. And without Paul, I wouldn't be here. So, so even- I, thank, I, I do thank him. So even though Paul um, chose not to associate with you once you left, you don't harbor any hard feelings towards him. Nope, I love the man, and I'm I'm grateful for everything he did for me. Anything we missed about Houston wrestling, we've went nearly three and a half fucking hours. Um, But we got lots of Houston wrestling in there. Is there anything... We're done with this subject. Is there anything you can think of that we may have missed that we'd like to touch on? I cannot. I cannot. I, I'm, I'm sure that somebody's going to pick up on something. By God, well, I think we hit it. And uh, there's more. We'll answer your questions at some point. Absolutely. I think we hit it. I think that's pretty much all that we need to get into for bonus show number two. It was Houston. Uh, this was not a labor of love for me, but thankfully, I didn't have to do a lot of research. Bruce was there. He got to just tell stories. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. It's a little different format for us, just freestyling, uh, but that's kind of all we could do for Houston. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday with your final bonus show. We'll actually tell you the true story behind what happened with Bruce's 2008 firing this Friday right here on Something to Wrestle With. Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.